Well, hello there, everybody. Feels like we've been doing quite a lot of this lately, but as you might have noticed, this episode is coming out a day later than we normally release them. Usually they're a Wednesday thing. And the reason being is that, once again, Nintendo has decided to drop a little bit of an info dump on Tears of the Kingdom for us. So basically, Nintendo announced that they were going to be dropping what was ostensibly the final trailer for Tears of the Kingdom on Thursday, the day after we were supposed to originally air this episode. And because of that, Matt and I decided to push out so that we could attach some thoughts to the end of this one. Just uh, cover it and strike while the iron is hot. So that discussion does come towards the end of this episode. There will be a spoiler warning. Uh, so if you are spoiler averse on Tears of the Kingdom, uh, not to worry. We, we give ample warning and there will be time to bounce out of here before we really get into that. So again, um, look for that whole discussion after the Sacred Realms rundown in this episode. But until then, on with the show. Welcome to Sacred Realms. Great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, joined as always by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Deep into our playthrough of A Link Between Worlds, we are we are squarely in the back third of the game at this point, Matt. We're, we're, we're kind of in that homestretch period now, you know, where um, I can see I can see the end of the game on the horizon. Um, and it's always a weird feeling because especially games like A Link Between Worlds where, you know, we come up with the episode list at the, at the front of the season mm -hmm. and it's just like 14 episodes or whatever because, you know, these top downs typically have got a lot of dungeons and whatnot. It always it feels like, oh, we've got we got a big old season coming up, you know? Yep. And then it just it just slowly whittles itself away. Until we get down to this part where we are uh, kind of coming towards the home stretch, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. No, yep. that's fair. But that's, uh, here, here we are in the uh, starting the home stretch journey towards uh, completion, which feels good. It always feels good to uh, to start that. Uh, it's like I know you never ran track because nobody should ever run track. It's a horrible sport. It's really awful. But you start that back. 100 yard dash when you run on the 400 meter and you get to the you round that second or uh yeah you round that corner and you start the back hundred and you see the end inside you know you sound like you sound like that that admiral from best of both worlds who's like picard gets assimilated and he's all like <laughs> <laughs> i saw a freshman overtake yeah. three he seniors would never, on the final he would never work for the borg and you know why because i saw him win this crazy marathon one time <laughs> or something and i'm like cool i don't know i don't see how that's relevant dude like <laughs> but your but your your analogy was much better than I, that. I was about to say, I yeah. feel like mine actually worked, whereas his <laughs> did not in any way, shape, or form. But okay. <laughs> there you go. You, you you got a one up on Admiral Hansen, so uh Badmiral Hansen. Badmiral like, Hansen, yeah, there you go. The worst. There you go. <laughs> the uh, fight does not go well, Enterprise. The fight does not go well, Enterprise. Uh how are you doing tonight, Matt? I'm I'm good, Lyndon. I am excellent. It's a beautiful spring evening. Um currently minimal bug 
bug um, assault happening. So as long as that maintains the status quo, then we'll 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 keep cruising in Excellentville. Um, but yeah, it's good. I, I had a good day with uh, playing some game, and I told you a little bit right before we started that uh, did something a little bit different today. Just tried to shake it up a bit. So excited to talk about that. Some, um, but. Uh, outside of that, I'm also excellent because we have a, a guest on again, and uh, one of our favorites, a returning favorite. I think first time this season, though. Yep. Uh, first time this season. First time in a while. Um, Max Nichols, good to have you back on, my friend. How are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm doing great. Uh, finally glad glad to finally end my long break from Sacred Realms. It's a quirk of, of the dungeons I picked, I guess. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we are equally glad that, that uh, hiatus has finally ended. Yeah, I, I think this is definitely probably the longest gap that we've ever had between appearances on the show for you, excepting uh, your first ever appearance on the show. And that's because the first time we ever had you on was the Water Temple. So that, you know, that was pretty deep into Ocarina of Time. Um but uh, yeah, definitely, definitely been much longer than it than it usually is. A uh, few factors in play there. One is that, uh, you know, like you said, we've, we've just got a lot of dungeons in this game um, and we've had Jackson back for multiples. So that's not something I ever thought we'd be able to say again. But hey, here we are. We made it happen. So <laughs> yay. But uh, regardless, this is one that I'm actually really glad that we have you back for and you requested it specially. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. But um, since we haven't really caught up with you since uh yeah since triforce quest on wind waker um yeah i mean how have you been doing man are you uh are you just as excited for may the 12th as we are it's getting real close i am very excited i have uh have the day off i actually have other like a week and a half off a little bit later that month but that has that's because it's like my anniversary and stuff um it's just a bonus that happens to be when tears of the kingdom dude 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 I just I'm having a revelation as you're, as oh, you're no. talking. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> I just realized I get to meet you in person this year. Oh yeah? Are you coming to the uh Bungie yeah, Day? I'm, get, grand I'm, opening I'm flying party? up for the for the Bungie Day HQ grand opening party. Nice. Yeah, for I mean for listeners who don't know the, the context, we've been working from home for millions of years. Um and we're going to continue to allow employees of Bungie to work from home, but they are opening the office after a big renovation for optional work. Uh, and they also do a yearly like Bungie day. We do a yearly Bungie day celebration. Bungie day is seven, seven. Um, so they're combining those two and flying all the, uh, all, all the remote FT full-time employees. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Digital, digital first. I love it. It's a fantastic way to be, but, uh, I, I would be lying if I said that I'm not wildly excited to make it up there um, and to, you know, actually get to chat with you in person. We we may actually have to do this in reverse. <laughs> we may have to mean? we may have to plan it so that like oh. we're doing an episode <laughs> that week. But it's you and I recording in person, Max, and, and me and Matt has and to me dial in. in. Yeah, that would be hilarious. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about it. Now I really want to do that just for the I know, right? that would be fun. We'll workshop yeah. it. But yeah, I think that'd be a wasted opportunity to not. <laughs> do that um regardless i just totally derailed your whole thing we were trying to talk about tears of the kingdom <laughs> oh no that's fine i've it wasn't that i basically just saying i have time off that i'm going to use some of tears of the kingdom and i'm very excited have you 
I've so far managed to avoid spoilers Good. for the most part. Like I haven't seen anything that was revealed in the last couple videos they released that I know of. There's some stuff where I've seen it. I'm like, I don't know if this is like fan art of something or something from a trailer and I don't want to know. So like maybe a little, but well, g- good on um, you. I think, uh, I, I know that it was very important to you to, to not be spoiled in any major way going into this. And so I'm glad to hear that that has been successful. I feel like there's a few things probably really working in your favor here. And one of those is the fact that like Nintendo can hardly be said to be like drowning as an information about this thing. So like, yeah, I've never been happier for Nintendo secrecy. Right? Oh, man. Uh, I, I, for one, obviously, no spoilers, but uh, I've been keeping up with all the official stuff and uh, um, am very excited by what I've been seeing. So that's, oh, yeah. a, that's a good feeling. Um, it's it's nice. it's good to feel like you're you're cruising towards. I'm glad experience. you're not coming on being like, oh, man, Max, you're in for a disappointment. <laughs> man. Honestly, this game you just better, doesn't look that great. Obviously, we're still firming up plans around Tears of the Kingdom, and uh, I think we've said we're going to do four episodes, but uh, we're going to be trying to figure out who's going to be on and doing what. And because I was actually talking to Matt about that uh, the other day, and um, I think even though it's going to be really fun having a few episodes of just like a more freewheeling conversational tone, because we don't want to be doing like a review season for this thing right when it comes out, but it's going to be very difficult knowing how to structure those um between people who are at different very points. different points in yeah the different game. points in the game like some people are going to be playing faster or slower and then you get into all of the conversations around like well who's who's even to say that this game is one that's going to be played in any kind of standard order because it's completely possible that it won't be you know time does not flow straight when you play tears of the kingdom uh that's true yeah yeah if, if you have me on it will probably only be for like that fourth one because it's probably gonna take me a month to play through and i'm not gonna want to play until yeah. I finish or not gonna want to podcast until i finish i feel like so we'll see i feel like goes. the easiest one is definitely going to be like if tears of the kingdom does have any kind of great plateau analog of any kind then that first episode is going to be easy. Sure, because then we can just be like, play to this point, and then we'll just talk about like first impressions, you know? Yeah. Um, and that that would be pretty nice. But I don't know. We'll see. Lots of un- yeah. For, first impressions episode is a is a good game. Yeah. Lots of unanswered questions that will very shortly become answered. So good times there. Um, and just a reminder to everybody, that's May 12th. So if you are all about getting that in a physical format, then now's the time to do your pre-orders. And if you're like me and you're tired of keeping up with tiny little game microchips, then uh, just get that digital and your life will be way easier. And, I, and at least for other games, I've seen Nintendo do pre-downloads that then are just available as soon as it goes live at you know midnight whatever um so you might be able to do that so just keep an eye out for any pre-downloads that you can do so if you're one of those people that just can't wait may 12th at uh, 1201 a.m uh, local time you'll probably be able to uh, just hop right in yeah. and if you're lucky it'll glitch and it'll let you play right away Ooh, <laughs> that would be that happened to one person who downloaded the pre-download or pre- something for the advanced wars remake and then they delayed it several months like six oh, no. months. <laughs> one one person just like had the whole game and, and just played like, it all the way through <laughs> ages before it came out. It's awesome. Uh-huh. And this this person never lost access. Like it, he never got booted out or anything. I'm I'm not sure if they they eventually lost the access or not. Uh, 
Go talk. Who had an article about I, it? A week I would ago. imagine if that if that person was was um, thinking ahead, I'm sure they probably just left the game running on their Switch and never closed and it out. Didn't yeah. turn the Switch off. <laughs> yep. Because hey, it can't it can't push you for an update if you never close the game. So <laughs> so there you go. That's using your brain. All right. Well, cool. Uh, yeah. May that happen to some lucky person or maybe even all of us. Who's to say? Um, so since this is the first episode that we've had you on for this game, Max, let's go ahead and do the thing we always do where we catch up with you about your history with A Link Between Worlds. Talk about, you know, kind of your your recollection of this game, kind of where you hold it uh, in terms of rankings and the canon of Zelda games. I, I think that this is not actually one that we've had a lot of crosstalk with you about over the over the course of doing the podcast. I know it's come up with a few other people once or twice, but I don't recall ever having a conversation with you about this game specifically. Yeah, I don't I don't think I've chatted about it here. Um so I have told this story a little bit before, so I'll rush through it. But basically when Link Between Worlds came out, that was like 2013. And I was in a I think that was 2013 at least, something like that. Um and I was in kind of a I was at my lowest point as a Zelda fan. I had essentially had multiple, like three or four Zelda games in a row that each one disappointed me more than the last over a period of like 10 years. Culminating in the worst Zelda game of all time, The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. (sighs) Something like that, yes. Are you okay, Matt? Are you good? (laughs) I don't even believe that. I just did it for the reaction. Just glaring at you. Don't want to hurt. Just, Matt. I'm just glaring at Lyndon. It's not even your fault anymore, Max. I'm just glaring at him. <laughs> Matthew used glare. It was super effective. <laughs> so, I, so I didn't even know if I really was planned on buying a Link Between Worlds. That's how low I was. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to buy it. I don't know. And I, I, I eventually did cave and pre-order the, the special edition 3DS for it. But that's because I wanted the 3DS more than because of Link that Between Worlds. That 3DS was really cool. So I, I didn't play it until like a week after it came out. And then I loved it. It was, it felt like. Did it feel like coming home? I was playing a real Zelda game for the first time in a decade. Um, I'm saying some inflammatory things right now. Uh, (laughs) But that's how it felt to me at the time. It makes for good pop. Yep. And, uh. And I devoured it. I, I think I played it in like a few couple settings, basically. It's not that long of a game, but still that was, that was a lot. Uh, and, and then I immediately, and this is maybe the only game I've ever done this with other than like undertale, um, where I, I beat it and then I immediately played it through again, uh, on hero mode, whatever they called it. In yeah. This one, um, which is the one and only time I've ever played a Zelda game on hero mode. And, uh, and yeah, it like, it basically revitalized my interest in the series, was the uh, so I know that you obviously have got a lot of love for a link to the past was, um, you know, the promise of a sequel to that game, which kind of reuses its overworld and uh, is, you know, very much like a spiritual successor to such a classic was was that kind of a, a big draw for you in terms of things that convinced you to actually pull the trigger on it? Um. Trying to think back. I uh I don't think so. I was actually pretty pessimistic about that. Like I thought it was lame. I'm not I'll be honest. I was like, this is this seems really dumb that they're just reusing the same overworld. The whole point of Zelda is to explore an overworld. I've already explored this one a million times. Uh was sort of my thought process at the time. Um 
So that wasn't a draw, but it was probably a thing that helped it feel like coming home to use, to use Matt's phrase there for me. Right. Like if I'd been missing, you know, what felt like a real Zelda experience or whatever, however I framed it at the time, then it being my favorite 2d Zelda or favorite 2d Hyrule rather, um, certainly didn't. You hurt. got your, you got your fill of member berries on that one. Well, that's cool. I, yeah, I, um, it, it is interesting because I've wondered to myself, like if that had been the marketing push for a game that I had that amount of nostalgia for, because when this game was coming out, I was definitely, I was following it and I knew I was going to get it day one. I was very excited for it, but I had no nostalgia for a link to the past because I hadn't played it yet. So, um, I, I've wondered like, hypothetical exercise if nintendo was ever to do this kind of thing with like ocarina of time for instance you know um like not just a remake but like same game or or sorry new game in a same space would i would Uh i be would i have um difficulty dismissing it as uh anything other than like just a, a cash in like a like a cash grab on people's nostalgia you know um especially these days where that's kind of like the modus operandi for a lot of big IP that are floating around out All there. All right, there's our big word for the episode. We're sticking to that one. Modus operandi. Yep. Cool. That's our that's our word for now the we episode. Have to say it Twelve more yeah. times. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is, but uh, definitely a, a, an interesting thought exercise. But anyway, so clearly you love the game. Played it twice in a row. Um, how has it kind of like maintained its uh, status in your memory as you get further and further from it? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I was actually surprised by the answer to this question because I replayed it for this podcast a couple months ago. Oh, thank you. Maximum Uh, Nichols, who famously does not replay games. Doing his homework. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it was the first time I'd replayed it since it came out. Um, And it, I still enjoyed it thoroughly, but I actually was surprised that it didn't blow me away anymore like it did the first time. Uh, like I, st- I think it's great, um, but it is not one of my top Zelda games, uh, even though it, it played that special role in reigniting my love of the series. Like I don't have it. I don't hold it in that high of regard in the canon of Zelda. Mm. Yeah. Well, you've uh, also had, uh, I mean, we've all had the, uh, Link's Awakening remaster since that time too. So, um, which, yes. which at least for me, and if I remember correctly for you as well, um, really served to uh you know be an excellent experience that like reminded us all the reasons that we loved that game so much in the first place and just kind of like showcased Mm -hmm. all the excellent things about it with a brand new coat of paint you know for uh in in my mind the link's awakening remake does an incredible job of actually recapturing the same feelings that the original game made me feel um like it's the same notes uh, Link Between Worlds, I think, has very different strengths than a Link to yep. the Past yep. did. Um, like it's good, it's good, but it's good for very different reasons, and and uh, I think lesser reasons. What? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think it's half the game a Link Between pa- Link to the Past is. Uh, wow. <clears throat> Well, I mean, oh, wait, 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 I'm sorry. I think I misheard you. Were you saying that you don't think a link between worlds is half the game or a link's awakening is half the game that 
I, I don't think Link Retreat. Okay, okay, it's okay. half the game. I, I thought you said past, that so. about Link's Awakening, and I was like, I'm va- I'm very confused because I thought I that mean, was your favorite Zelda in some game. I'm confused. In some ways, I think you could say that a Link Between Worlds is exactly half the game that a Link to the Past is. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, and I'm, I'm sorry, I was confused. No longer confused. Push forward. Oh, that's totally fair. Um, which uh, which I'll probably get into a little bit more as we go as we talk more. Uh, I want to chat for a while about like the world design of Link Between Worlds. Definitely, I think that'll be an interesting topic. Um, uh, but yeah, oh, uh, something I do want to throw out there because it's come up in a couple of the episodes so far this season. Um, a Link Between Worlds is did not start off as a remake of a Link to the really. Past. Uh, it was originally just a new handheld Zelda game. They prototyped the in the wall mechanic with uh cell shaded like Toon Link originally. Like it was gonna be like it was being tested with the same art style Minish as Cap. like Phantom Hourglass and um Spirit Tracks. So the, the Link to the Past world came in later. Uh I can give more into that later. I might I might leave that topic for the second episode I'm gonna be in next week. You can't you can't you can't get it all out of the way all, all in one go, you know. Yeah, there's too like, much. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want a three hour episode yeah. here. Well, we might get one anyway, who knows? Um <laughs> but yeah, they, they tend to happen. But I would actually say I, I mean, if you do have anything you want to say about the overworld and kind of the general construction of this game and thoughts and feelings about it, then uh unless you feel like it dovetails really well with discussions about desert palace then i would say you could probably go ahead and, and do that here just as context going into our, right. our more specific discussion okay so i'm going to start with a question to you two which do you think has a world that feels larger to you as the player <coughs> link to the past or link between worlds uh, well, link to the past i think feels larger because fast travel comes in later and isn't as prevalent or as used as it is in a link between worlds which i think we talked a little bit about last week about just how much fast travel has shrunk the world to us and like we're spending less time exploring less time engaging with the overworld in general at least that's my opinion linda i don't know if you still feel that way or not so but. My my answer is the same for slightly different reasons. A Link to the Past feels bigger to me. Uh, a few different things kind of all come into that. One one is just an interesting quirk of having um, – of the change in art styles, right? Uh, everything that's on the screen in a given time in A Link to the Past, like it, it feels like you're seeing more stuff even though you aren't necessarily. There's something about A Link to the World uh, – A Link Between Worlds that feels a little bit more zoomed in. Um and I think that's just down to the uh, the extra like depth, you know. Um, there's 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 something about it that feels not necessarily more claustrophobic, but just more zoomed in than a link to the past. Um, and the, the the fast travel is definitely a thing as well. Matt's definitely right about that. But you know, the other part of it for me is just down to familiarity. Like um, for some reason. I would actually say that I've played A Link to the Past and A Link Between Worlds the same number of times now. And for whatever reason, I don't have as clear of a recall on A Link to the Past, um, especially once you get into the dark world, like just the the geography of it and how to get from one place to another and kind of where everything is. Like I don't, I don't have it committed to memory the same way that I do. And that can actually – that can definitely make a Zelda overworld feel bigger as well. 
um, just because like you, like there's a there's a certain exploratory quality that comes into play when you don't have a perfect recall of something, you know? Right. Um, so I, I agree with you both. I think a link to the past feels like a bigger, broader world to explore than a link between worlds does. Uh, and I think there's a bunch of reasons. Um, I think the fast travel is a good call out because fast travel does shrink worlds. Uh, because it literally just means you have to spend less time in them. Um, and you see them less. Uh, and there's also literally details like you are more zoomed. I think you are actually more zoomed in, in a link between worlds than in a link to the past. Um, it's a little bit hard to do apples to apples comparison there because they have different aspect ratios. Link to the past is four by three and link between worlds is widescreen. Uh, I actually think four by three is better for top down games personally, because it gives you equal more equal view North and South to East and West. Um, digress there i guess uh so i think that's a big thing and there's also stuff like um i i was i could have sworn that a link between worlds you physically walked slower than you do in a link uh, or sorry other way around that a link to the past you physically walk slower than you do in a link between worlds but i looked at some videos beforehand for this podcast and they seem to actually be pretty close to identical um, so that was just like an illusion of the fact that it was zoomed in more that makes you feel like you're walking faster. In link yeah, worlds. and I think that the fluidity of movement in A Link Between Worlds probably contributes to that feeling a little bit as well. Like, um, you know, yep. the <laughs> of course, we, we stepped into a little bit of uh, semantic uh, controversy earlier in the season when we said that you you can't walk diagonally in A Link to the Past, which isn't <laughs> true. But But to clarify what we meant, you know, we're just saying that like Link is able in A Link Between Worlds, like you can face Link uh, any direction in a 360 degree circle, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Link, link to the past had four facing directions. Link between worlds. For, does it have eight or does it have like fine granularity? It has pretty fine granularity. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you, you can like get yourself at like a, you know, 73 degree angle in the link between worlds. It's not constrained. Um, so it has way more fluid movement in that way. Yeah, I was the one w- <laughs> for the listeners. I had jumped on the discord and I was like, why does everyone <laughs> keep saying you can't go diagonally in a link to the past? <laughs> of course you could go diagonally. Um, they were all talking about face. Yeah, we were, we, we were slightly inaccurately discussing, um, something that is a difference between the games, but I don't think we were putting quite the right name to it, but yeah, that, that is, that is a more (laughs) accurate summation of the difference between the two games. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree. Link to the past feels bigger. Um, and, and there's some other stuff too, like, you know, how, how, how much of an unknown is it when you're exploring the world in one versus the other? I would, I think my perception is that a link between worlds surfaces a lot more information to you and kind of makes it easier to know where things are and where to go. And, um, and that's often a lot of people would consider that better game design. Um, but one thing it does do is make the world feel smaller. Yeah. Uh, well, and there's also just simple stuff like, you know, how far away can you effectively fight things much further in 
link mm. between worlds than in a link to the past. Yeah. Um, so that also makes your perception of space shrink. Well, and a lot of this too is down to the repeating conversation that we've had um, centered around the difference in difficulty philosophy of these games from when A Link to the Past was made to when A Link Between Worlds was made. Um, and, you know, you come to the inescapable conclusion that uh, these games are, for the most part, now being developed with a much lower barrier to entry on puzzle solving and wayfinding and even combat difficulty. Um, and uh, I, I think that like, I, I, you know, I think I said an episode or two ago that I personally don't feel that that's either a positive or a negative. It just is a thing, you know, um, and it creates different experiences between the two games. But, um, you know, especially talking about the the whole wayfinding sort of deal, like the difficulty of exploration and the amount to which um, you your hand is not held in any meaningful way in a link to the past um, definitely kind of contributes to this thing that we're talking about right now. Yeah. There's an interesting thing that happens where uh, the more, the more a game kind of tries to make sure that you can't get lost and tries to make sure that you can always find the answer to the problems in front of you. Um, the more like guardrails and, bowling alley bumpers it puts up um the less it feels like you're exploring an authentic world and the more it feels like you're you're being taken through a theme park right. ride yeah um that's fair and like there's there, there you could have a million debates about where the where the right trade-off between those two things is and like what can you do to have less of a trade-off and try to get both feelings um but I would say that a link to the past world world feels more like a actual fantasy world that I'm exploring than a link to the well, past. And or, it's so interesting. And, I, uh, and like uh, I, <laughs> other way around, you meant right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. so interesting. I hadn't even considered the difference between uh, these two mechanics before this very moment. But thinking about the way in which you interact with the double world system between games, right? Um, in a link between worlds. It's very rigid in terms of like moving from low rule to high rule can be done only in certain specific points of the map. And there are exact points that need to be there in order for you to do what we're talking about, you know, doing puzzle solving in the overworld, right? Doing um, doing exploration towards a goal in the overworld. They put the interdimensional gates exactly where they need to be so that you can get to a specific place. Um, whereas in a link between, or sorry, a link to the past, you know, you get, uh, basically once you have the ability to shoop back into the light world from the dark world, you can do that absolutely anywhere that you want. And the only restriction on that is if you like pop back in, in the middle of an object, then it, it won't let you do it. You know? Yep. Yeah, and, that, and that's exactly the sort of thing I talk about when I'm talking about like guardrails. Um, like how much how much rope do they give you to hang yourself with? Uh, you know, it's a double edged sword. Um, and like uh, you can compare this to Breath of the Wild, which was the next new Zelda game after this, right? Which, in some ways, Breath of the Wild was directly and intentionally inspired by Links Between Worlds. Um. Like they they were actively experimenting with like how do we make a Zelda game non linear when they made a link between worlds and they looked to that 
for inspiration when they made Breath of the Wild. Um, but on this kind of difficulty side of things, Breath of the Wild takes the exact opposite approach where they're like, nope, you can, here's a bunch of simulated systems. You can mess with them in any way you can think to mess with them. Go knock yourself out. And like, that's the design philosophy of Breath of the Wild. Um, so as of as a very early experiment in nonlinearity in Zelda games, do you feel that a link between worlds is a success? I think so. Um, I think there's there's it's very cool when you can explore around in the world and find dungeons um, and decide whether to tackle them or not based on whether you feel like it or not at that moment. Uh, when I was playing through this game recently, I stumbled across Turtle Rock early on. And I was like, yeah, I'm getting tired. I'm going to go to bed. I'm not going to start this dungeon. And then I logged in later and I was like, I feel like exploring this other place. And I went and found a different dungeon and did that one first instead. Um, and that's that sort of freedom and or- organic kind of exploratory feeling is something that you, that really shines when the, when there's non-linearity like they have in this game. Yeah. Um, and they made it work. Like they made, they took they figured out how to make it work by evolving past the, the Metroidvania progression gating system that Zelda had had up to this point, uh, which Matt's mentioned a few times. He's talked about the Metroidvania thing. Um, I think Breath of the Wild's method was more successful, <laughs> uh, but I don't. I think this was a success as well. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds so. You, we started this discussion with you saying that you think a link between worlds is great and a link to the past is great um, for different reasons, but you feel that a link between worlds is great for less good reasons, right? Um, and it sounds to me like the reasons that you think it's great, and I think the reasons that Matt and I both think it's great as well, is because yes, you've got you've got fun experiments and nonlinearity. You have a good you have a good feeling set of systems and mechanics. You have an entertaining moment to moment gameplay, um, you know, and 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 basically just a good all around Zelda game. But the the highs of those things don't surpass just the magnitude of a link to the past's world and that experience. Yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Um, I mean, the stuff that Brett links between worlds does do well, like there's a whole lot of it. Uh, the, the, the key mechanic, of course, of going to the walls is, is super cool. Um, and it, it does make you look at a world that you have already previously explored. If you're like me, at least, um, in a totally different way, right? Like, they, they, the one of the reasons that reusing the same Hyrule works is because they gave you, they force you to look at it very differently than you looked at it in A Link to the Past. Um, like you have to evaluate spatial relationships totally differently than you did in LTTP. Uh, so like that's awesome. It has great combat. Um, just the the item upgrade system and the the you know, facing improvements from other 2D Zelda games and um, the number of enemies they throw at you in certain cases. Like, that all just feels really good and fun to play. Uh, did you ever play Bastion? I 
I, I have not, and I, I'm actually a same. Uh, I'm blah. I'm actually ashamed to say that Supergiant's catalog of games is one of the big blind spots in my overall like video game personal history. I don't even know um, what that is. Uh, Hades. Oh man, I actually kind of have been wanting to get into Hades. I don't know. Is it on Xbox? Yeah. It's on Switch. Oh, it's a, ooh. Well, there you go. Yep. I recommend the Switch version so you can play it in bed. <laughs> yes, um, most definitely. The yeah. reason we... Super Giant Games has made, I don't know, like six games or something like that, maybe five. And all but one of the games they've made was my game of the year, the respective year it came out. And the the one exception was because they released the game in 2017 and it was competing with Breath of the Wild. So, you know. It's almost, un, almost that's, unfair that's to unfair all other games. Any right? game. like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think, look, I think um, you put Breath of the Wild up against almost any game and it probably still comes out as game of the year. I don't I don't know of any game in the last decade that would have beaten Breath of the Wild for game of the year. Personally. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the best game ever made, so I agree. <laughs> um where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. Uh, anyway, so the, the combat in Link Between Worlds reminds me of how the combat feels in Bastion, which was Supergiant Games' first game. Um, I highly recommend checking it out because it's awesome in a variety of ways. It's a roguelike, uh, right? I mean, they kind of all are. No? Uh, nope. 80s is the only roguelike. I don't know why played. I had it in my head that that's kind of what they did. It might just be because Hades made such a big splash. Um uh, but but what but, is uh, what is Bastion like? What's its so Bastion is it's a uh, it's it's story driven top down game. Um, it's got kind of more self contained levels. Like you you pick a level from a map rather than wandering around a world. Um, but it's uh, it's got like you know you you can equip a shotgun or a hammer or a bow and every all the different weapons feel very different. Um, you can play any. Any level of different weapons. Uh, and it's got like this pretty. Well, I was going to start going into its music and its story and stuff, but it's a little. It's a so here's tangent. my here's my question um, then. When Sacred Realms eventually spins off into the thing we keep saying we're going to do, which is where we go and we play things that could be categorized as Zelda likes. Uh, do you feel like Bastion should have a place in that conversation? Yeah. I think it could fit. It's less of a Zelda-like than a lot of other Zelda-likes uh, because it doesn't have what we would call a dungeon. It doesn't have dungeons. It doesn't have a puzzle-solving <coughs> element. It's like Zelda in that it is a top-down game and it has um, combat that works, that functions similarly to some of the 2D Zelda Gotcha. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I don't know. It wouldn't be the top of my list of... Things that are like Zelda. Tune, Kyber Light Drifter, all those other things we keep talking about. Um, yeah. Cool. Uh, so with with all that being said, there's my there's my phrase there. Um, <laughs> so one of the – yeah, my MO, my modus operandi. operandi. There it Yay, is. <laughs> there it is. Uh, one of the conversations we keep having about this game is specifically about its dungeons and the way that they're laid out and the way that they function, the flow of them. And I, I, I think that's a very important conversation for us to have in the context of all of this. But I, I really think we need to come back to that when we do actually get into this week's dungeon map because um, because I have thoughts 
Um, it's kind of a continuing conversation <laughs> in that segment, and I definitely want to get to it there. But before we get into housekeeping, last question for you. I guess this is the big one. I mean, if you had to give us a a, a numbered ranking of where A Link Between Worlds falls for you, whereabouts would it end up? Uh Unlike people like Joshua from ZU, I don't really keep a ranking around. Um, this would be in the middle of the pack, probably. Uh, maybe maybe slightly below the middle, to be honest. Um, although that has more to do with the strength of its competition than anything right. else. Uh, kind of talking about it in terms of like the way people talk about Pixar movies, right? Where it's like... <laughs> it's like i mean yeah it's like yeah bug's life is f- yeah it's not cars fine, i guess but, but yeah, uh, it's not toy story but yeah exactly <laughs> cool cool all right well clearly we've got a lot more to get into and talk about here but let's go ahead and get the housekeeping out of the way and then get more specifically into some of these topics as they relate to the section of game that we played this week If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and get access to our Discord channel, listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and so much more. Additionally, one of the benefits that we offer is that Master Sword patrons and above get their names read every week here on the show. Those legendary individuals are Shepherd Street, Matthew, Chris, Daniel, Fallout 907, Kelso, Tiffany, The Star, Daxel, Patrice, Stephanie, Darknuck, Brian, George, Mike, Dylan, Lennon, Melanie, Kolku, Aiden, Rowan, Josh, Nick, Dante, Gep, Brittany, Davey, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Ben, Daniel, Nick D underscore TV, Travis, Christian, Jonathan, Hyrule Interviews, a.k.a. your guest of the evening, Maximum Nichols, Garrett, Andrew, these are the most legendary of individuals. We would, uh, what, what, what would we do this week, Matt? Fight a giant uh, living plant that shoots sunbeams at us. With yeah, them. sure. We would yeah. do that with any one of y'all on any day of the week. <laughs> Hopefully that wouldn't happen to us on every day of the week. But, <laughs> but I would do that with y'all at least once. <laughs> my gosh um, this is a big old man-eating plant for sure um so what little, little shop of horrors meets uh the borg i guess because it shoots laser beams so yeah we'll go with that cool sounds right to me one additional note real quick uh we said last week that we were going to have the poll for voting on our next game that we're going to play up and indeed by the time you're listening to this episode on Wednesday, April the 12th, that poll will be live. And as we said before, we're going to be voting again on top-down options, back-to-back top-down seasons. Your options are going to be The Legend of Zelda, The Minish Cap, The Legend of Zelda, Phantom Hourglass, or an Oracle of Seasons, Oracle of Ages double season. Those are the things you got to pick from. So uh, go in there, cast your vote, and we will see what we're going to do next. Of course, just a reminder that that season will kick off after four weeks of Tears of the Kingdom coverage. But with all that being said, let's get into the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is, of course, a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we are covering A Link Between Worlds Chapter 8. Part 1 of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, as always, 
the plot recap. Matt, take it away. As we land back in low rule from the Chamber of the Sages, we set off to collect the sand rod from Ravio so that we can explore the next location marked on our map by Hilda. Returning to Hyrule, we buy the rod from Ravio and head to the southern desert to see what we can now explore with our new power. This region of Hyrule seems to have been particularly affected by the closeness of low rule, as there are more dimensional rifts here than anywhere else in the land. Oddly, passing into Lorul does not land us in a desert, but in a swampy marshland infested with creatures and menacing-looking plant life. As we pass between Hyrule and Lorul, we begin exploring deeper and deeper into the desert and the swamp, respectively. Each location has many treasures to hold, and we find pieces of heart and many rupees to refill our wallet. Vultures and Geldmen inhabit this dangerous region in Hyrule and plague us as we traverse the sands with our sand rod. This section of the world is unique not only in its geography, but also in the fact that the temple we must explore is not in Low Rule, but in Hyrule. By using the sand rod and the many dimensional rifts, we make it to the Desert Palace of Hyrule and enter. The Desert Palace is one of the largest dungeons we have entered yet, and its puzzles are devious and challenging. The Sand Rod is the primary tool in our arsenal for traversing the areas, and its pillars not only allow us to walk over the sand, but also to merge into them and reach even more areas that are otherwise inaccessible. We move through the central chamber and adjoining rooms somewhat slowly at first, but with increasing confidence as we get the feel for the tricks that help us along the way. Low Rule and High Rule seem to have a lot of crossover here, as some of the enemies we have fought in Low Rule can be found in this dungeon. Gibdos, Skull Ropes, Bemos, Levers, and more attempt to block our progression through the challenges. However, with clever use of the Sand Rod, we can make some of these enemies work to our advantage to either shoot each other or some hard-to-reach switches that are needed to progress. Further on in the dungeon, we jump into a sand pit and are assaulted by a large moving pillar of what looks like sand-colored gelatin, but what moves with deadly speed. We see many doors blocked by immense boulders, but are unable to move them aside with our power gauntlets. We start searching for another means of dislodging these stone blockades, and eventually find the extremely powerful Titan mitts. With these, we can lift even the heaviest stone and toss it aside as if it were a pebble. With this final piece of puzzle-solving equipment, we begin moving through the dungeon with gusto. Some new enemies poke their beastie heads out to try to stop us, but even some nasty sandworms and flying tiles can't stop us from reaching our goal. As we exit the palace back into Hyrule through a sequestered entrance, we begin looking for the boss. Instead, we find another dimensional rift that takes us to a large swath of quicksand overlooking the Misery Mire. It seems that this sand may have come through the rift from Hyrule to cover this section of low rule, and as we begin to move forward cautiously, a huge rumble and a deep roar rip through the air as we see a huge shape moving under the sand up from the swamp. Before us emerges a gigantic cactus-looking plant that moves like a snake. It opens its flowery petals, revealing five eyes, circles of razor-sharp teeth, and it lets loose a deafening roar. 
This apparently carnivorous plant begins moving around the quicksand pit at incredible speeds, occasionally popping up out of the sand to let loose a flurry of pea hats to harass us. We have to use the sand rod to create walkways between the few stone pillars that are scattered around the pit and try to maneuver close enough to this creature to slash it with our sword or shoot it with the bow. This proves a difficult but not impossible task, and we begin to chip away at the monster bit by bit. Eventually, it becomes so enraged that it starts shooting a laser beam at us whenever it emerges from the sand, and we know that we are getting close to defeating it. After countless swings of the sword, we finally prune this troublesome weed and watch it explode with deep satisfaction. The quicksand quicksand slows, and the wall that we came through pushes back to reveal the portrait of our helpful witch friend, Irene. We head directly to the portrait and enter the Chamber of Sages once more to converse with the newly freed Irene. She says how grateful she is, and also gloats in the fact that her fortune seems to have come true, since we have now saved her from an eternity as a portrait. With all this gratitude, she encourages us to head back to Low Rule as quickly as possible to free the last two sages and to push our journey towards its conclusion. Well done, as always, Matt. That takes us into part two, which is our takes, where we talk about this section of the game and how it made us feel. So, (laughs) all right. Uh, So, you know, last week we had kind of said that there was just a little bit more game to move around in between dungeons than we had had in the weeks previous. And I feel like that's true again this week. The path that takes us to the Desert Palace um, is just uh, a bit more expansive um, even than what we had last week. And I think that that's appropriate because the process for getting into the Desert Palace or um, uh, excuse me, the Swamp Palace in uh and uh, a link to the past was also s- somewhat obtuse, right? That's the one where, oh word, oh word. That's the one where you had to get the flute and have the birdie fly you there, you know. Oh yeah. So uh, anyway, this one we we have an interesting situation going on where the boss area and the painting are in low rule, but the rest of the dungeon is in high rule. So. Uh, mainly what we're having to do is to get down to the desert area from the Hyrule overworld, and then we're moving back and forth between Hyrule and Low uh, and Low Rule, um, trying to get access to the dungeon. Uh, moving back and forth between the desert and the swamp, um, and it's it's a really cool little arrangement of things. It definitely um, it's definitely a really great way to make the player spend a good amount of time in this southwestern portion of the map, right? Um, and, and there's a fair amount of exploring to be done down here as well in terms of extras that you can find, my eyes, pieces of heart, stuff like that. There's a lot of really cool use of the traveling between dimensions to reach different points on the map, even outside of the dungeon. Like, there's some pieces of heart that you can find, there's some giant rupees you can find um, that are all only accessible if you're doing the back and forth and back and forth between the realms and um, I thought that was really cool and I think it's the most utilized that that particular mechanic has been uh, in the entire game so far Um, of course if you've played this section early on in the game then you get that out of the way early but seeing as we're coming into it in the back you know quarter to a third um, we're kind of getting 
a good amount of use out of it now, which I yeah, thought was yeah, yeah. really good from a timing perspective. We're familiar with it now. And now it's like taking it to that next level of how do you use that to solve overworld puzzles in a meaningful and um, thought provoking way. And, and I really liked that about this section of the game yeah. uh, in general, because what we've really had before this is basically you figure out where the portal is to get you into the part of low rule that you want to be. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of mosey to the dungeon from there. Right. And so this is, this is definitely a very different situation than that. And I, I also enjoyed it, Matt. I thought it was a, a pretty good time. Uh, Max, did you kind of feel, I don't know what order you were doing all these dungeons in. I don't know if you got desert palace out of the way sooner rather than later, but, uh, um, I don't know. Did you, did you feel like that this was a pretty good, um, execution of, um, different mechanics, you know, traversal moving back and forth between the worlds, that whole thing. Yeah. I, uh, I think this might be my favorite kind of approach to a dungeon in this game. Um, partially because most of the dungeons don't really have much of an approach to them. Uh, you know, you got the the sneaky, sneaking to the Dark Palace, and then everything else is kind of just a straight shot, like you said. So this one was a nice, nice kind of loop to throw us in, which was like, you know, there's a bunch of gameplay involved. You have to do some, some puzzles. Um, it's actually kind of harder to, to figure out in here and there, like what path you need to take or like what angle you need to shoot the sand rod off at. Yeah. Um, it's also got the interesting distinction of being the only dungeon in low rule that cannot go first. Uh, you have to do at least one other dungeon before you do this one because you need to get the sand rod. Um, uh, which I don't know why they made that choice, but I think it's interesting. Um, and I think the the actual approach to get to this dungeon has a couple surprises in it. Like when you when you realize like kind of the structure of this, where you're actually going, do you go to the desert first and then to the dark world, or the other way around? Um, either way, like it finds a couple moments where it surprises you about like which world you're going to do what in, culminating in the biggest surprise, which is like, oh, this dungeon is in the light world, which we are not expecting at this point in the game. Yeah. Uh, and I, I actually did think, you know, we'll talk about the dungeon uh, more specifically in a minute. I did think it was very funny that for some reason the enemies that are in the dungeon are low rule enemies, even though they're in Hyrule. <laughs> um, but it was, it was a fun little interesting thing. Um, but yeah, definitely an interesting like turn of expectations there. Um, and I, I really I really did appreciate that very much. And it's similar to you, Max. It does kind of make me wonder what the rationale was for gating one of these temples in this way. Um, because I I can't see an immediately apparent reason other than maybe just like, I don't know. I like they were doing something so new in terms of the linearity of dungeons that maybe they were just like, well, let's let's throw one thing in here that keeps it a bit more standard to what people already know. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. Like traditionally, the reason they would care about dungeon order is like uh, the obvious one, of course, is you need the item from this other dungeon in order to play through this dungeon. But that wasn't the case here. Or the second most obvious one is like, there is a simple version of a puzzle that we're going to teach you in an early dungeon and then have a more complicated version in a later dungeon where we, where you already know the mechanic, but I don't really think that happens either here. So I don't know why. I mean, the only puzzle that really is 
comparable is, you know, moving the sand and moving the water. So like you have to fill some rooms with sand in this dungeon and in the yeah. I don't remember what it's called. The the water this game's water temple. You mm-hmm. have to do the same thing with water, but like that's it, really. Yeah. Is it right. and that's and the dungeon you have to beat first is Thieves Town anyway. So it's not yeah, it's not even the same dungeon. Yeah. Yeah. Is it possible that there was kind of a categorization on Nintendo's end of things in terms of like they in their minds, there was a variation in difficulty between dungeons and dungeon areas, and they might have felt like this whole section was just harder. And so, um, you know, maybe it was an intentional thing where it's like, okay, we we want the player to have done at least one other low rule dungeon before getting to this one. Yeah, quite possible. I mean, there are definitely, they definitely had uh, an intentional order to the dungeons where the ones that are easiest and fastest to get to are the also the easiest dungeons. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, like, you kind of have to work at it in order to even get to one of the hardest dungeons first, um, which it, it basically naturally filters players towards dungeons that they have the skills and resources to beat. Um, like there's a, there's another dungeon that you haven't gotten to yet. That is also probably easily the hardest dungeon in this game. And it is the hardest to get to. Uh, I guess yeah. we'll, I guess we'll just, so there was definitely an element of I guess we'll here. just speculate that that's probably the reason. Um, I think it's the only thing that makes a ton of sense as, as we're kind of talking about it. Um, but I mean, yeah, definitely even even moving past the dungeon, this area of the game is just a bit more difficult, right? Like enemy density is a little bit higher. There's a lot more, you know, types of enemies. Um, and even moving past combat difficulty, there is some inherent difficulty just in in the act of what we're doing, uh, you know, what we've been talking about, where the player's moving back and forth between multiple interdimensional gates and then having to combine that with sand rod traversal, right? Like, um, yeah, you know, it's it's definitely it's a few different things all at once. And it's one of those times where it's tough for me to accurately gauge how much of uh, how much we can actually call that a difficult exercise in any meaningful way, because like, you know, I've like, I've played this game before and I've played lots of Zelda games before. So, um, it's not very often that something comes along in one of these games that I would categorize as being like really like freaking <laughs> hard, you know? Um, you do. Yeah. You definitely have a bit of a blind spot because you can only put yourself into the head of a new player so right. much. Which all the game designers struggle with too, by the way. Uh, that's one of the hardest parts of game design is accurately predicting how a player with less experience than you is going to feel. Um, yeah. But one of the main things that we do get access to here um, is the return of a Ravio item, which we have, been, which is, which has been completely absent from our discussions for the last two weeks, and and I was very very happy that that streak is now broken because. Um, it's definitely very fun learning the ins and outs of a new item, right? And I will definitely say that the sand rod is one that I don't think back on super fondly. Like, I don't I, I don't hate it. I don't think it's like the hammer levels of I never use it. But uh, it definitely is one of the items in this game that serves a very specific purpose and doesn't have a super great combat usage outside of that because most of the items 
I find that I continue using throughout the game after I've already cleared the dungeon that they're attached to um, are ones that are good in combat, right? So the bow, the fire rod, the bombs are perpetually useful, you know, but like I'm, I'm definitely not spending too much time equipping like the tornado rod, for instance, or, uh, you know, or even necessarily the ice rod or the hammer or any of those. You're not using the tornado <laughs> rod? Um, so I use the tornado rod when I go to the Tower of Treachery. Um, just because just okay. because it's useful for stunning large groups of enemies at one time. But in like regular gameplay, I so so the way that I I usually do this is that I've got the bombs permanently locked to the top button spot. And then the bottom one is always gonna be either the the upgraded bow or the upgraded fire rod, depending on how I'm feeling. Um, I, I just don't usually find myself in a situation where I'm needing to stun too many people. Like it, like it's always useful, right? But uh, oh, a Tie Fighter, there's a Tie Fighter. <laughs> That's a weird it's sounding a, one too. It's Whoa, a, it's a Learjet. Oh, wow. We haven't had one of those. Yeah. Interesting. So, uh, okay. I've been meaning to ask you when I listen to these episodes and it, you, you both say like TIE Fighter and then like a sound that is like pitch perfect. Sounds like it came right out of a Star Wars movie plays. Are you editing in a TIE Fighter yeah. sound or is that? Actually- oh, no, no. That's I, <laughs> I wish we were actually hearing a TIE Fighter. No, it's a plane. Like there's yeah. we're we're right in the middle of DFW's flight pattern for most of their inbound flights so we constantly get like 747s and lear jets and helicopters coming over so <laughs> instead of just having the airplane noise be the background noise it's more fun to just do a tie fighter just do drop. A tie fighter noise right so there you go mystery <laughs> solved if that if that wasn't clear to anybody else that's why you've been hearing tie fighter noises in our you, you should have lied and kept the dream alive. I know, right? God, I would love that so much. Yeah, we're in the uh, we're in the flight path for all of the Empire's twin ion engine person to person fighter craft. But yeah. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the the gust gust rod is that what it's called? Torn- uh, man, I'm bad with tornado rod. Apparently. Tornado rod. I have that equipped almost 100 percent of the time in this game, uh, because to me it's like. I can just press the button. Doesn't matter where I'm facing or what I'm doing. Every enemy around me will be stunned, and then I can just sw- slice them. Um, like it's just this universally useful item to me. Uh, I can definitely see that. Um, and l- unless it's a wall master, then it'll get you. It'll punish right. you. Uh, I, I definitely can kind of see where you're coming from there. And like I said. Uh, the only area of this game where I feel challenged from a combat perspective now is in the the highest level of the Tower of Treasury. And I definitely do rely on the Tornado Rod quite a lot in there just because that's yeah. like pure like enemy mob, like high density, lots of stuff going on, just super freaking useful. And and yeah, definitely recommend it for that. Um, but, but the Sand Rod, and it, it, but it's so interesting, right? Because we're talking about how good the tornado rod is at that and the sand rod from a combat perspective is the same thing just worse right like (laughs) it does the same thing but it only does it in a straight line directly in front of you yeah and it puts things out of your range yeah yes uh, if they're on sand so you know it's not useful in combat so 
Unless it's a combat arena that is specially designed for you to need to move around high platforms over sand, which only happens in this dungeon. <laughs> and right. in the rupee rush in Le Rule. Oh, well, yeah, there you go. That too. Um, so one thing that is funny that you say, Lyndon, you, so you equip the tornado rod for the purpose of stunning enemies. That's what I use the hammer for. Like, I use the hammer very very frequently um because not only does it stun enemies but also if you happen to hit one it will more or less squish most enemies so squish um, squish hmm. so i i really like the hammer um and i use it a lot especially in the uh tower of terror or treachery or whatever it's called okay fair enough fair enough um i will say though that for going back to the sand rob for as mu- for as much as the sand rod is not my favorite item in this game. I think that the the puzzle solving opportunities that it kind of affords us, like the puzzles that they built around it, I actually found to be really fun. Like this is this is kind of like a, an interestingly versatile tool for changing the world around you, you know, and the mm-hmm. fact that it can be used to create mergeable walls in addition to just raising and lowering platforms is um is really cool. It's it's an item that's doing a lot of things at one time. Um, so you, like you're adding the raising and lowering of platforms to you know raise and lower yourself or objects, right? Or to get from one place to another. Wall merging, and then in addition to that, you've also got um, well, you, you've also got one extra way. Like you're you're basically adding an extra dimension to your possible movement, right? And that's the thing that we've been talking about a lot in this game is that. Uh, you know, varying levels of height are a big thing that we kind of keep coming back to. And it's been a few weeks since we've really had a chance to talk about that in a meaningful way. But the pillars that the sand rod creates kind of bring that back into the conversation in a big way. Um, I think there's some really interesting stuff they do with it. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, the the game, the the wall merging mechanic was an incredible uh, mechanic for them to basically sell the game like this around. Like it has so much versatility, so many different ways it can force you to look at things in ways you're not used to. Um, and so many ways they could play with it with mechanics like this, or like, you know, the one enemy where they have the enemy has a shield and you merge onto the shield and, you know, just stuff like that. There's so many ways they can mess with it. Um, and this is the one item that I can think of where you are actually changing you know the canvas that you can use that mechanic on uh by adding or removing walls i guess bombs remove walls but (laughs) um you know most of the time you're not really changing you're not really interacting with that wall merging mechanic with the other right yeah the one item changes the wall merge and i'll tell you when i we first got the sand rod i had no idea that it was creating mergeable walls for a while and like um when i discovered that in actually i discovered an overworld exploration trying to get to a piece of heart that was in um low rule i was like blown away it like totally uh surprised me that you would be able to merge into this wall of sand and uh i think that that added dimensionality takes this from a like meh item to a good item well and here now we arrive back at our recurring thing of Oh, we keep forgetting that we can merge into walls and also we're not realizing what you can merge into. You know? Yeah, well, but like it didn't make it didn't make logical sense to me that you could merge into a wall of sand like it's a sand is such a malleable, non-constant 
substrate <laughs> that like it didn't make any sense to you're, me. You're but, applying Breath of the Wild logic to a, a Link Between yeah, Worlds puzzle. Yeah, I, I am a little like, bit. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. But yeah, I think it elevates this item to, to another level. I, I agree. Yeah. It is probably the most Breath of the Wild-esque item in mm. the game. I totally, totally agree. It has, yeah. Uh, that might that may also be the reason why they made this dungeon gated like it is. Like they might have just been like, people are having trouble remembering to even do wall merging half the time because it's so new to them. We'd better like just put a buffer here so people are less likely to get here first. I think uh, that's fair. Yeah, yeah that, I, that I, probably I, makes the most sense. I can definitely see that being the case. Um yeah. I, I think the, the there's less barriers to the way that this item can be used within its intended space than some of the other ones, right? And that all that does is add complexity. And I can definitely see this being, especially for a newer player, somebody who hasn't played a lot of Zelda games before, I can definitely see this being an area where a lot of trial and error is kind of required in order to um in order to kind of reach your goal, you know? Yep. Yeah. Um, so I, so <clears throat> I know we're in our takes. We all want to talk about the dungeon. Um, and I don't want to hold us up for too long. All I really want to say is that I, you know, I, I really enjoy uh, TIE Fighter. Man, it's really busy tonight. So before we move on to the dungeon map, I do just want to say that I really like, um, so one of the craziest, coolest things about Zelda games that have dual worlds, especially the games where it feels like they're kind of on top of each other, like A Link to the Past and then this one, is when you fe- you have the feeling of being in a same space but inverted, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it's the difference between being in Hawkins, Indiana or being in the Upside Down, right? Um, yeah. yeah. And not – you know, th- that dynamic of things isn't always – super duper interesting like there's always a difference between high rule and low rule but sometimes it's more blatant than other times and this time it, it it's super fun because just the um just the the vast like juxtaposition between the desert and the swamp is fun in and of itself and bouncing back and forth between those two very different areas that are in very same places Yep. is so interesting and it's even cooler because the i don't know if you noticed but the swamp and the desert have their raised platforms in similar places so it's like it feels like a very same arrangement of things it's just like the environment is is so very different and um for, just from an art perspective from an atmosphere perspective that's always a really fun thing to do um you know, I wouldn't say that the I wouldn't yeah. say that the art style of of any of this is necessarily blowing me away. And I'm realizing now that I haven't talked a lot about the aesthetic of this game since our first episode. Um, but just to catch up on that, it I continue to find it adequate. Right. I, I like it. Like, I wouldn't say that I love it, but I like it. No. Yeah, yeah. it's it's fine. It I go, Max. Oh, I was going to say, I think it's really, ugly. really, really interesting. I think this is one of the ugliest Zelda games ever made. Wow. Uh, well, I mean, and so I, I, I've been surprised to hearing like the, the like lukewarm positive reactions to everyone in the podcast season, because to me, it's like this. No, this is the worst it gets other than Phantom Hourglass. I don't think. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I haven't played Phantom Hourglass, but I, I except for brief moments but that's mostly a resolution thing right like the ds just didn't really have the juice to 
to do anything super memorable. Is is that pretty much true? Well, it didn't. It didn't have flat. It, it had the 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 characters that were designed for the Wind Waker's cell right. shading, but it didn't have cell shading. It didn't have flat color shading. It had kind of gross, low resolution, like gradient texturing and lighting. Uh, so yeah, they're they're the bottom <laughs> of the pile. But this is the second. Well, we'll list. we'll talk about that when we get to it. But I think you know, uh, people people who are big fans of the Mario series often talk about the new Super Mario series of games in a similar way, right? Like those that whole series of side-scrolling Mario games that came out for like the Wii U. And uh, it, it, it's like, it's totally fine. It's a, it's a perfectly fine interpretation of these characters and it's totally serviceable, but it's just not... Um, it doesn't stand out in any particular way and it's certainly not... It, it does not have the easy feeling confidence of a lot of Zelda game art styles, you know, yeah. it's, it's kind of like the Funko pop of Zelda. Uh, don't uh, talk to me about Funko pop. I think that's, a, I think that's a very um, good comparison to a real world. Let me just say Funko pop. No, he's on his soapbox. Funko now. pop killed Mondo. He's on his soapbox. And I will never forgive them for that. Okay. All right. Funko Pop was someone saying, what if we took a bunch of characters and removed their silhouettes and removed their their eyes as distinguishing features? People will love it. <laughs> what um, could go wrong? Except for so, Max. So funny you bring up new Super Mario Brothers because they revealed in an interview that they almost that they thought about naming a link between worlds. Uh, new Legend of Well, because this would all have been happening at the same time, right? This 3DS Wii U era, it was all a thing together. It's the same same time. Yep, that's very interesting. So so glad. Oh yeah, do that. I mean very well because I I think with Mario you can sort of like there's sort of a loosey goosey um, kind of convention to the naming and branding of those games that works for it because it um, Mario can sort of be really anything that they want it to be as they're making it and people will mostly be cool with whatever that is. Um, Zelda, there's a bit more there's a bit more of a particular set of requirements um, for Zelda success, I think, than there are for Mario success. At least that's my take on it. But, um, but I think the, the art style, it falls into a very similar category, which is just that like, yeah, you know what? It works perfectly fine, but it is a little disappointing <clears throat> for a series that has such a history of uber distinctive artistic expression. And that's where I'm at with that. Well, there you go. Yeah. There, there is Lyndon's takes on, uh, on <laughs> Sacred Realm Rundown. Lyndon's takes on art. <laughs> Congratulations. You implemented your own section 3.5. There you go. Well, I mean, I, I feel somewhat qualified to, to speak to this point. But, I feel like uh, you're the only really super qualified person to do that. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Thank you. Congratulations. But but regardless, there's your one compliment for the evening. I appreciate no you, more. Matt. I I will take it and cherish it. Um, yeah. No. I, so anyway, yeah. That bouncing back and forth between the two very different worlds, super fun time. Does anybody else have anything they want to say about th- just this general area, um, the things we do here before we bounce on into the actual desert palace? I um I love the surprise of thinking that you're going to a big swamp, especially it's like a bait and switch. If you've played a link to the past, you're like, Oh, it's in the swamp. This is where misery Meyer is. I'm going to go play misery Meyer. I've done that before. And then you get there and like, they're like, Nope, 
sand um, <laughs> desert instead I, I, <laughs> uh also worth pointing out where else have we seen swapping between desert and very wet alternate world skyward sword works there yeah <laughs> there you go you you immediately just got on matt's good side so well done uh but but also um just completely objectively speaking, I think that the uh, the Lanayru region of Skyward Sword is uh, fantastic. So there you go. In total agreement. Anyway, uh, cool. Well, with all that being said, let's get into part three, which is the dungeon map where we talk about this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. This week's dungeon is the Desert Palace, which inexplicably like, look, so I get how the Desert Palace exists as it does in Hyrule because it's in the same spot and looks mostly the same from the outside as the one in A Link to the Past, right? Why is a chunk of the desert in low rule like did it break the dimensional plane and just like did a, did a section of this dungeon just like scoot into low rule or i'm kind of a little unclear on the mechanics of how this works because Hilda's, it's a very isolated desert yes like it's and again next to a swamp so the the geography of that makes literally no sense. And, and even Hilda's just like, I repeat, there is no desert in low rule. And I'm sitting here like, well, uh, you've got like a sure. you've got like a a ten by twenty rectangle of desert in low rule. You Hilda. have like maybe three acres worth of desert, yeah. it's like right there. Where'd that come from? It's a sandbox. Yeah, I was going to say, you come to find out that this is the low and royal family's sandbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's full of uh, something a lot more ferocious than womp rats, so maybe we should uh, take care of that yeah, for them, Yeah, no huh? kidding, no kidding. So all of that aside, a little weird fictional thing going on there, and I, I still don't totally get it. It would explain why there's low and monsters in a Hyrule uh, dungeon. Because we broke, yes. we we broke, broke the dimensional, the dimensional barrier. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, they're collapsing together. Man, well, there you go. Cool. Confirmed. Put that under headcanon, Matt. Let the record note. Ding. So I don't noted. know. We need a sound for that. For headcanon? Yeah, we I do it a lot, so we should probably have a sound for that at yeah, some point. I'll, I'll think about it. I'll think about it. Yeah. Um, but okay, but anyway, we'll talking the about list. the actual substance of this dungeon, um, what we really have here is a dungeon that has kind of shaken me out of the low rule dungeon doldrums that I've been sinking into over the last few weeks. And I'll expound more on that here in just a minute. But Max, you chose this dungeon specifically. This was the first one that you picked. Uh, you seemed very excited about it. And I would just like to ask you, as Matt pops open the whiskey. There you go. Ooh, that was a good one. That's that's <laughs> the good noise. Um, I would like to ask you where, where you were at with this dungeon, um, your thoughts and feelings on it, Feel free to just go for go forth yeah. and freewheel. So uh, quick story time is when I replayed this game, I didn't remember the dungeons very well. So part of the reason I played the whole game ahead of time, ahead of the pod, was so that I could scout it out and figure out which dungeons I wanted to do. Uh, my first choice was Dark Palace because that dungeon is that dungeon, dungeon is rocks. amazing. It's so good. <laughs> Joshua beat me to it. Um, but uh, basically what happened was every time I played a new dungeon in low rule, I was like, no, this is better than the last. This is better than the last. And then so I played like, let's see, what, what did I, what order did I do it in? Um, 
you know, I did Skullwoods first, and then Thieves mm. Hideout, and then mm. Turtle Rock, and then Desert Palace. Um, so I got to Desert Palace. I'm like, okay, no, this is definitely going up. So let me list. let me interrupt you for one second just to say that's so interesting to me because I think you're the first person that we've talked to who did Skullwoods and uh, Thieves Den first. And kind of uh, the thing that we have been saying over – especially those two episodes was that uh, we mm-hmm. wonder how the game would feel if somebody did those first just because they both felt, one, a little simpler just by virtue of not requiring a Ravio item, um, but also just because of their proximity to like where you get shooped out into low rule for the very first time. Yeah, it's funny because I tried to do the dungeon that is in – where like Hylia is in the light world first. Um, that was, you remember earlier where I was like, Oh yeah, I got to like the entrance of one that I decided to come back yeah. to later. Uh, that was that dungeon. Um, so I was kind of just exploring around the dark world and I kind of, I don't even remember what my thought process was, but I kind of stumbled across skull woods first. Um, of, of all things. Somehow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it it worked really well. Like it felt like a, I didn't feel a big difficulty jump, um, compared to previous dungeons. And I think that if I had started with like uh, some of these other dungeons, I would have felt a more severe difficulty sure. jump. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I do think I may have stumbled across kind of a intentionally natural feeling first dungeon pair. Um. Yeah, if if so, yeah, so, it, I think you've pretty much if such a thing does exist in this game, then I think you did it. <laughs> I'm so predictable. <laughs> uh, but going back to the Desert Palace, uh, yeah. So, anyways, I, I love Desert Palace because a I love the sand rod, like just the kind of puzzles it allows them to create are really great. There's some really good highlights in there, um, make you think in interesting ways. And I love the aesthetic and the kind of sense of place in this dungeon. It's kind of got that Spirit Temple slash Arbiter's Grounds vibes that I really appreciate in a Zelda Mm -hmm. dungeon. Um, Like the music in this dungeon is kind of spooky and I love it. Um, I want dungeons to have music that makes me like, that sounds ominous and makes me like feel tension. And this dungeon achieved that well that was another big dark palace win right like like that dungeon has incredible music and i I feel like the soundtrack in this one works for very similar reasons um and i i I feel like anytime i hear a soundtrack for a desert dungeon in a zelda game and it really leverages deserty feeling themes well um it always stands out to me because you know, we 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 always get like we get our fire dungeons and our water dungeons, and um, like we have some uh, some often recurring types of dungeons in Zelda games. But I feel like desert ones are kind of like they're out there; they do exist, but they're fewer and further between. And when we go to those, they always feel somewhat like more exotic to me than some other types of dungeons that we get. They have a very strong aesthetic that is very different from all the other Zelda yeah. dungeons. I think is a big part of that. Um, funny, funny thing. Like when I was replaying this, I, I got through the f- the first few Light World dungeons, and I was like, "Wow, I thought I remembered this game having amazing dungeons. These dungeons are kind of not blowing they're me fine." Away. <laughs> 
and I was like, oh, and it's so disappointing that they all have the same music. That's one thing they should have kept from newer Zelda games. Uh, and then I got to the Dark World, and I was like, oh, they were purposely leaving that to to make a bigger contrast. These are the good dungeons. Yeah, once the once the training uh, wheels are off, they're off. So, yep. And they managed. They like every dungeon has like this uh, really good like remix or reimagining of the LTP Dark World dungeon theme. They're all pretty different. Yeah, which I appreciate. Yeah. Um, Matt, how about you? What like first impressions on this dungeon? What were you feeling? Yeah, I was so intrigued by the fact that we were starting the dungeon in the light world just straight up. I I was going to text you about it today, but then I was like, no, I'm going to save it for the pod because we're recording tonight. Um, And the fact that the entrance to the dungeon has the uh, twin roba or the twin mold. uh, Right. Three eyes with the pincers. I was like, ooh, I like that. So it like. Just right out of the gate, it was kind of hitting some really good uh, buttons for me personally. Um, And you're right. I think desert palaces, sand palaces generally have a really awesome aesthetic. It's one of the reasons that the Spirit Temple is my favorite temple in Ocarina of Time. Yeah. And it like and same with Stone Tower temples, my favorite temple in um, uh, Majora's Mask. Well, and and, and like Max was just mentioning, the freaking Arbiter's Grounds. Yeah, I know. Like Like they're, they're always good. And, um, shoot, Skyward Swords Sand Temple, the Lanayru, um, oh, the sand, sand mines, no, the sand mines oh. and the sand ship well, also. Good. Yeah. yeah the, all of them are good. Like there's not a single one that I can think of that is not a great dungeon. So, uh, very excited going into this and, um, the puzzles I think are really, really good. And the use of the sand rod was excellent. There are a lot of times where you have to, you know, get yourself on a raised platform to hit multiple switches or raise a BMOS to hit switches on your behalf. Yep. And you have time all these things the right way um i think this this may be my favorite dungeon honestly like i think dark palace might still come above it but it's very close like i think that this does such a good job of knowing what it's setting out to do from a puzzle perspective the item usage perspective uh the enemies are challenging and there are more of them than in some of the other dungeons that we've had Mm -hmm. um like I think it really finds a really good um, collaboration of all of these things to make an excellent, excellent dungeon. Um, and I had a little bit of a unique experience with this dungeon because I decided to do something that I have never done before while playing Zelda. And that is I got the Titan Mitt and I left the dungeon and I went and did more exploring with the Titan Mitt in the middle of the dungeon. And I did that very much on purpose, again, because I've never done it before. So I wanted to see how that might change my experience with this dungeon in general. And, of course, it made the dungeon feel longer because I basically had an interlude. Right. right. So I went and I did a bunch of other things and I upgraded my master sword the rest of the way. I went and got the last master ore and came back into this dungeon oh, with so the golden master sword. Yeah, your gold sword now. Yep, I yeah. am gold master sword edition. Um and upgraded my fire rod also. So I, I did both of those things in the middle of this dungeon. Um, yeah, so it was, and I think that was really, um, I think that elevated it even more just a little bit, just giving me something to, uh, accomplish mid dungeon. Right. Cause one of the, one of the things we've been saying a lot is that you get, even if there is a dungeon item, 
it doesn't feel like that is the midpoint of the dungeon and there's not like a from here forward the dungeon feels different than it did from the beginning right and it kind of gave me that separation point mentally mm-hmm. to where i went back and explored and then came back and felt like i had a second half of the dungeon to do yeah, so yeah. that was very beneficial for me personally um and i really gave you the classic zelda dungeon it, feeling it did yeah <laughs> progression and and stages yeah. right so i i liked that a lot um Man, yeah, I, I just really, really liked this dungeon a lot. So a lot to get into there. One, I just want to say, so the, so what you're talking about where you left the dungeon to go do some other stuff, for whatever reason, I rarely do that. When I get into a dungeon in a Zelda game, I typically, I block off 30, 45 minutes and I just do it front to back and it, like it feels weird to me to leave the dungeon before. It felt I, very, it felt very odd. Um, I, I was uncomfortable yeah yeah and there's no reason that it should right like you should be perfectly free to do that and 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 like it should it clearly it's actually like a boon in some ways but um but i never ever do that so kudos to you for uh for taking that leap matt not that it's like it's pretty low investment like yeah but it's it's changing up my own formula yeah 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 yeah. um and it really gives me hope like when i think about what i want dungeons to be in a breath of the wild style game that's kind of what i think about right where you can just kind of like freely enter and exit it within the overall world right yep um so there you go you're you're ahead of this hypothetical curve that may not even be the lines along which nintendo is thinking but i hope they are um but so very cool on that uh i i do want to say that i completely agree with you a lot of the puzzles that were happening in this dungeon i thought were were really fun um i was saying last week that even though we have a boomerang in this game uh, I wish that it was used more for puzzle solving. And the example that I used was like uh, uh, multiple switch hitting the yep. way that it was in Wind Waker and other games. Right. Yep. And I like that a version of that appeared here, both with the um, sword spin to hit the multiple orbs puzzle and then the Beamos laser to hit the multiple orbs puzzle. Yeah. Something about this sort of puzzle in a Zelda game is really fun for me when it just gives you like it gives you a bunch of switches that you have to hit in a small area and you just have to figure out how to do it. I'm not sure why that is because like the, the solution is fairly apparent as soon as you get in there. Right. It's not, it's not like this is hard to figure out, but something about it gives me that good brain chemical in a way that I can't quite describe. And I, I enjoyed seeing it for sure. Um, I similarly really liked this dungeon. Um, the music was, a really good mood setter right from the get go. Um, really enjoyed it for that reason. But you know, the biggest thing for me and Max, I, I don't know. I, I, I think you've been listening week to week, right? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, one of our biggest gripes that we've had with dungeons, especially post dark palace is that while at the beginning, we appreciated the brevity and and the focused quality that these dungeons had, at some point, they just started to feel too short. Um, it started to feel too much like we were getting two-thirds of what we really expected from a top-down dungeon in the back half of its gameplay time. Yeah. And the great thing that this dungeon did was that it it, it totally bucked that trend for me. There was a moment where I had been playing for about a half hour. I don't know. Um I'd gotten through quite a few puzzles, 
uh, I'd gotten my first small key and I was really having a good time. And I went and I checked the map and was like, okay, I'm probably pretty close to the boss key and the Titan mitt and the boss and all those other things. Um, and then when I went and checked the map, I realized that there were two entire floors of unexplored rooms aside from where I'd been. And I was just like, oh my God, shoot it straight into my veins. Holy crap. Like, I was Let's just, go. I was expecting to be just like done with, almost done with this thing. And then it, it's, and then I went and looked at the map and I was just like, oh dude, you've got two thirds of this dungeon left to go. And that was such a refreshing and good feeling. Like I can't tell you how good that made me feel. It feels more like a Link to the Past dungeon than most of them. It, it, it really does. does. Yeah. Which is funny because the Link to the Past version of this dungeon is actually not really even such of a much. Like, as I yeah, remember it. Yeah, it was fine. As I remember it, this, like, Desert Palace in A Link to the Past was one of those dungeons where it was, like, a lot of unnecessary misleading rooms. And the actual, like, path through the dungeon was, like, was pretty short. Yeah, it's not huge. Misery Mire was huge, but also had a lot of stuff that was optional. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple a couple of notes about that uh, that trend where the dungeons are shorter in this game. Uh, there is generally a lot of pressure in modern games to make content types of a given category, like dungeon would be a category in this case, um, have a similar length. And there's there's a bunch of reasons for that, but, uh, you know, related to balance and, and pacing and whatnot. But a lot of it has to do with, like, they want players to, to have an understanding of what to expect in terms of time investment before they get started on a thing that they might want to do in a single Well, it's like, uh, it's like it's Strikes like, in Destiny 2. They're typically a 15-minute affair. Yeah, in, in Destiny, especially since it's multiplayer, and um, we, we, we really care a lot about that. Um, so anyways that kind of creates this pressure for them to pick a standardized size for all their dungeons and make them roughly fit the same length of play. Uh, I don't know how much Nintendo actually pays attention to that as like a, a goal. So that's just kind of speculation on my part, but it would help explain why they kind of, they're not doing the link to the past thing where the early dungeons are short and the later dungeons are huge. Um, they're kind of all more, constrained towards the same band. So there is an interesting piece uh, of evidence that I can kind of contribute to what you're talking about, Max, um, at least in terms of like, how can we determine what Nintendo considers to be a large amount of time spent in this game? Uh, and that is how often do the weather vanes that you say that start chirping and telling you that you've been playing for too long, which seems pretty quick, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it's about 45 minutes, but it really feels like a half hour. Um, and I, I, but I feel like that's pretty telling. But I feel I feel like that's pretty telling. Uh, I mean, maybe it's not the totality of like, oh, Nintendo considers this to be a long amount of time spent in Link Between Worlds or whatever. But it it's definitely yeah. some evidence in favor of like, yes, uh, they are considering um, you know forty five thirty to forty five minutes to be a pretty good amount of time spent in this game. And if you go much bigger than a lot of these dungeons have been then you're definitely exceeding that amount of time for most people. Yeah. I did not consider that at all, but that actually might be a huge reason why. Like if, if they had some like from the top, uh, like goal set to like, you know, we need to try to 
you know, have our play sessions underneath this time because that's what we've determined is a healthy time um, for the kids that play our games, which Nintendo cared about a lot because they cared about being trusted by parents. Um, then that could be the reason why dungeons are shorter and there are more dungeons. Uh, which reminds me of the other thing I was going to throw out there, which is that uh, during production, at one point, one of the one of the lead designers on this game had suggested, um, pitched to Shigeru Miyamoto that he wanted to make fifty dungeons. Whoa! For this game. I mean, I, I would play all fifty of those dungeons. Br- bring it on! And they would have been <laughs> they would have been smaller dungeons, um, probably. You know, somewhere between the actual dungeons and the like treasure hunt caves you find in this game. Almost like shrines, you uh, might say. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but yeah, I thought that was interesting. Uh, I, you know, there's actually a lot of information about the development of this game that has some interesting ups and downs that I'll get into next episode. Cool. Cool. Well, for now, let's just say that, I mean, so Matt, are are you similar to me where you were really starting to feel burned out by the the length and the, the vibe of the dungeons that we were getting? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, it was really starting to be like, at, at first, it was one of those things where I was like, this is fine. Not every dungeon has to be a marathon. Some of them can be sprints. And as long as it's fun, then it's okay. And they were, they were fun. Like with the exception of Skull Woods, which we ha- had our problems with, uh, Swamp Palace and Thieves Den, they were sprints, but there was fun stuff there, right? Totally agree. Yes. But, but even with that being said, at some point it was just like, I, I need more. I want more from this. And yes. And Desert Palace really, really gave me that. And the thing that's nice about that is that it's not even just about the number of rooms that are in this dungeon. It's about the fact that puzzle solving with the sand rod requires at times a certain amount of trial and error that also extends the amount of time that you're spending interacting with it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that this dungeon finally felt like a full length top down dungeon that I could sink my teeth into. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing is, and Max, I know you've beaten the game, so maybe tell me if I'm wrong, but my recollection is that definitely one, but maybe both of the dungeons that we have coming up after this one are also both just a little bit longer than stuff we've done earlier in the game. And I'm excited about that. Um, and I really hope that my memory is not failing me here, but <laughs> one of them is definitely the hardest and, and probably if it gives you any trouble longest. God, I love that. That's exciting. That makes me so excited to hear. Um, but no, so uh, the thing that's fun about this too is that I feel like we actually have a very good balance of puzzle solving versus enemy density. I mean, there's a lot of dudes running around in here. And I will say that in a top-down Zelda game specifically, levers are one of the most frantic enemies that you can fight. Totally right? agree. Because even, even though they're pushovers, right, like they're, they're a one-hit KO – uh, definitely if you have an upgraded master sword um the fact that you can't see them in advance and they just pop out of the sand usually three at a time yep 
you know, that always adds a little bit of extra difficulty and a little bit of a frantic quality to enemy encounters. And I do appreciate that. Yeah. And then there was that room with the cactus dude from Mario or <laughs> right. kind of like the cactus dude from Mario. Um, he looked more pumpkin which I thought was funny. Yeah. But as soon as you hit his little body segments off, they just fly around the room at light you know? speed. And you're just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. Hey, you hey there. I bud. Thought of when I saw this guy. <laughs> What'd you think of? You might actually be, this might be previous to like your, your earliest memories, but, uh, there was a power Rangers villain one time, uh, who, it Oh was no, a, I remember the pumpkin, the power pumpkin rapper. I remember the pumpkin rapper, Lyndon. <laughs> I, I watched all of the power Rangers with you when I was young. And then I also kind of introduced Jackson to them a little bit when I was a little bit older, just because I was like, Oh, I watched this with Lyndon growing up. This will be a fun thing for me and Jackson. But at that time I was like, almost 10 and it was no longer that interesting if anymore you want, so. if, you want, if you the listener want some context go uh youtube a link for the pumpkin rapper in power from rangers. the og power rangers and be prepared for uh nightmares be prepared for the worst rapping that you've ever heard in your life behind even will smith so there you go um Whew, okay, yeah, that was a bit of inside. Uh, but but no, totally agree. Uh, lots of fun combat encounters in this dungeon. And I, I really do feel like um, it, it also had a, a very nice flow to it, right? Like it did feel split up into sections the way that some of them haven't necessarily. And even though that didn't have anything to do with items, right? It's like you don't get an item and that opens things up. What this dungeon does do, it withholds keys from you until you get past the first third of the dungeon. Like the first third of the dungeon is very much just exploration and learning how to puzzle solve with the sand rod. And then learn how to sand rod. Yes. Then go find keys. And then once you really, once you get the Titan mid, then you start getting keys and you can kind of get into the back half of the dungeon. Um, and that was really nice because it, it gave us exactly what we've been missing, which is a feeling that the, that like one section of the dungeon is giving way to another more complicated section. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think it's a good progression and um, yeah, very positive feelings. So um, while Lyndon is coughing to his death, um, I'll move us along and say, Max, do you have any other uh, final thoughts you want to put on this dungeon before we move on to the boss? Uh, yes, I have a bunch. of. Ah, yes, I love it when guests bring notes. Well, and I, I feel like I Max typically shows up with a wall of notes and. I appreciate that because all that is is pod in our pocket. Like, let's go. And Lyndon and I famously have no notes. We just freewheel. We're not. I've heard you talk about notes before. I I, take notes. I generally, okay, I'll start, like, if it's a game I've never played before, I'll start the game taking notes about general thoughts and things. But I I usually fall off of that by about the third dungeon because I feel like I've gotten enough of a feel for the game that I can freewheel more successfully. (laughs) I have to take notes because my brain is like Swiss cheese. And I, I, it's too many Zelda facts crowding out everything else. So there's no room for new Zelda facts. Um, so let's see my notes. Cool music. Uh, in quotation marks, LTT BMOs. No. Those things are really. Oh, yeah. yeah. Especially because you can't kill them in LinkedIn. Uh, this I, game. In either game. Yeah. And they're very yep. fast. Like that laser uh, really rotates. Yeah, very it quickly. goes quickly. I have another note that it says, oh, it's cool that you can dodge him with wall mechanic. 
they can't hit you when you're in the wall. And also we, uh, when you raise the sand rod so that they can't shoot you or see you. Which is important for some puzzles. Uh, one way switches, not a puzzle. Um, that's an unfinished note. <laughs> but uh, there's a <laughs> So we've talked about the difference between puzzle box and non-puzzle box dungeons in this podcast before. But one of the key features that requires a puzzle to, to qualify for the puzzle box label, in my mind, is that um, when you change the state of the dungeon, it can't be a one-way switch. Uh, it's for the same reason that, like, you know, if every time you made a move, it was always, it would, like, click into place because it knew it was the right, right. move on, like, a rubik's cube or something and that wouldn't be much of a puzzle sure. right it needs to you need to like have to figure it all out at once um so the, so that's why this dungeon a lot of it doesn't qualify for that label in my mind uh because a lot of the switches that change the state of things like flooding sand into a room are one way latching so switches. here's a here's a rabbit trail for you max what yeah. is your all-time favorite puzzle box zelda dungeon and why is it the water temple from ocarina of time uh the water temple is up there it might be stone tower temple though oh my god yes that is probably in my top like five favorite zelda dungeons it might be in my top three that dungeon is really good it is amazing I'm, i'm excited to replay a certain water dungeon in oracle of ages when the podcast gets there because that well you might get it next season that's possible brutal uh okay let's see what else i got um tiles flying off the floor to attack boring when drawn out that happens a couple times this dungeon you just have to sit there i literally just i sat at the door with my shield raised and didn't move for a solid like 30 seconds well and to me this puzzle would have been a lot i called it a puzzle this encounter would have been a lot more fun if there was actually like so if you had to jump down from the door into a lower area and you had to raise that sand block in the middle of it to defend yourself from the tiles. Um, that to me would have been a lot more fun because the best answer to do this is to do what Matt's saying, where you walk in the room and you just pop your shield and then nothing can hit you. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, hook shot can't connect to chest. Bah. I hate I that in this game. Can it it not, annoys I, me. I haven't no. even tried. No, it, it acts like it hits stone. It doesn't work. Yep. It's the worst. Uh, I have a note that says, if this was Breath of the Wild, you'd be able to hit other enemies with Beamos beams. You can. You absolutely can. Yes, that do, that does yes. work. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm not giving I had a, I had a Beamos kill a lever in here. Yep. Functional. <laughs> uh, I have a note that says, fairies are too powerful and reduces the value of hearts. Uh, that's an interesting one. Because um, if you think about it, fairies refill, what, seven hearts in this game? Or is it five? I, I believe it's five. Uh, it's not seven. Yeah. So honestly, they're not even that powerful as far as the, the main the rest of the series goes. But well, they're not um, powerful until you have there's this until you have where, four bottles filled with them. Yeah. There's a thing where if you play like I do, you'd never use a fairy. You always wait until you die and let it right. res you because you're trying to like get away without using them. So what ends up happening is like my first five hearts are really valuable because they're all essentially worth four hearts each because i have four fairies and every heart after that five heart mark is worth less because it's not multiplied by the fairies um 
I've, I've reached, I quickly reached a point in this game where I don't care about hearts. Uh, and then my last note was my favorite puzzle room was the room with arrow traps periodically shooting. The yeah, that was a really good one. Yeah. Well, and, and so the timing quality that that whole room has, so there's actually, um, I think that happens in two rooms, right? It happens in the boss key room. And then also in that last one where you have to release the sand into the boss chamber. Mm, I uh, don't know. I think it only happens in the one. Um, I, 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 I know there's two. So the room where you have to create sand pillars for the boulders to roll across. Yes. At the very end of that, there's an arrow hitting a switch puzzle. It's not nearly as like crucial to the room like or like you don't spend as much time with it as you do in the boss key room um but it is there but i i agree that's that's a lot of fun because especially when you stick uh when you stick two of the raising and lowering platforms next to each other it creates an element of having to manage the timing of all of that and uh and i i think that's that's really great i mean it's um it's one of those it's one of those puzzles that I've had a few of in this game where I get done with it and I think, oh, that was really fun. That could have been like leveraged in a more complicated and frustrating way later in the dungeon. And I would have thought it was great, but it wasn't. I thought it was great. Oh, I, I, I absolutely thought it was yeah. great. I just could have used there, more of it. There were enough puzzle mechanic ideas in this dungeon to fill two dungeons. Um, like there's a bunch of mechanics that they could have doubled down on and done harder and harder versions of kind of a similar puzzle. Um, and they instead went kind of broad, uh, because they had too many ideas. I think is what happened because the sand rod is awesome. Well, so I, I agree with you. Um, I do. I think that, I think the net result of that is still, is still very positive, at least in my opinion. Yes. I, I totally agree. Uh, have have we reached the, the end of your notes? Desert yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yes, that was the end of my end of my notes. Um, oh, the only other thing I want to throw out there because this came up in some previous episodes is that more than any other Zelda game, I value rupees in this game. Yes, um, like far more. I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with Mike that he doesn't care about rupees in this game, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I want the rupees in this game until I upgrade all the items um, or buy all the items rather. Yeah. And I was uh, going to say something about that as well, um, which is a follow up, you know, as you're saying from the last episode, Mike was on. I, uh, I definitely feel like I'm most always at a deficit of the rupees that I want in this game. And um, maybe I'm just doing it wrong. Maybe Mike has like a farming technique that, <laughs> that I'm not privy to. Um, but I, I'm, I'm definitely not flush with cash uh, to the extent that I feel like I could at any point go and buy everything from Ravio and just be done with it. Uh, I think right after I beat this dungeon, so by the time I got to this dungeon, I had all the items purchased. And right after I beat, beat this dungeon, I had, I finished upgrading all of my items. Uh, I've still, oh I, I spent the last like two dungeons of the game with like every single thing done except for the dungeon. I, I still have quite a lot that I need to buy. A lot of that is just because um, for the two episodes that we did not need a Ravio item, I was not buying new items that week. Um, 
Mm. And I, I, I didn't even like set out saying that that's how I was going to do it. I just, I just didn't get around to it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I still need the boomerang, the ice rod, tornado rod, um, hammer. I think, I think that's all the ones I haven't purchased yet. Um, Oh, there's so much stuff I want to talk about. I'm glad I'm having another week. Um, <laughs> I will. I love the Maya Mize. I'll, I guess I'll leave my notes for that until next week. Well, you can definitely give us a, a rough Maya count at this point in the game on Bloopy Trails, which I will be doing as well. But I, I think that we've kind of covered a lot of the ground that we want to about the dungeon proper. It's it's a yeah. great experience. Lots of really great puzzle solving and and really. Um, I mean, length plus good puzzles equals a great dungeon almost every time. And I feel like that's what we got here. Yeah, I, I agree. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and talk about the boss. We we come through the dimensional portal and we arrive in the uh, in the Lorulian royal family's sandbox in the middle of the swamp. And what we are faced with is uh, the monster from Little Shop of Horrors on steroids. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Zaganaga. 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 That is its name. There we go. There it uh, is. That one took a lot of imagination. (laughs) (laughs) Z-A-G-A-N-A-G. I'm so happy for you, man. Like the banana song? You, but no, I got yeah, it. Okay, I got cool, it. Cool, cool. I'm glad we all I'm glad got it. it. Yeah. Okay, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> I don't know why, but that's, that's great. Thank really you. stuck in my head. <laughs> oh, man, this shit's Zanaga. <laughs> wow. Okay, that was fun. So, um, So here's the thing about this boss. I think it's a really fun time. Previous... Uh, playthroughs i have gotten to this dungeon earlier than than i did this time and because of that i had less hearts didn't have the blue mail and yeah and and also i I, i'm sure didn't have my master sword upgrade to any serious extent and uh man this boss would be hella hard i mean that's the thing when if you don't have as much survivability and you have less attack power (laughs) then yeah this boss is actually is actually kind of hard. Um, it takes a ton of damage. It does a ton of damage to you, and you uh, you're constrained in your ability to do damage to it, just based on the fact that the only way to get to it is by making sand walkways between lots of different platforms. And you can't make a sand walkway while standing on your current sand walkway. Right. right. Yeah. Which I made that mistake at least twice and fell into the quicksand. Yeah. So yeah, that happens. Yeah. Um, No, it's really interesting because I think before now we've drawn a direct line with the low rule bosses between arena size and the difficulty of the boss, you know? Yep. Like with uh, Gemosaur King and uh, um, uh, whatever the laser shooting jellyfish was in uh, Swamp Palace. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, neither do I. We keep talking about how these arenas feel claustrophobic and that adds like a frantic quality quality to these boss fights. Um, And this is kind of the opposite of that. Like this arena is like pretty big, but it doesn't feel... It might be the only boss arena that has scrolling. I was about to say, it's not even all contained in one screen. Yeah. And also, is it the only one that's outside? It's So far, it's the only one that's outside. Uh, I think that it continues to be the only one that's outside. Yeah, that's pretty... I think that's cool, personally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
Definitely, definitely very frantic. I mean, the the fact that like this boss is doing so many things at one time, especially in its second phase, like it's shooting out babies, it's firing lasers, um, pee hats. Yes. The, yeah, it's got like a huge hyper beam attack. <laughs> it really does. It. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think this boss is really fun. I honestly do. And I had a little bit less fun with it this time just because I felt a little bit invulnerable. <laughs> Um, I, like I wasn't actually invulnerable, but you know, I had all these hearts, I had the blue mail and I had lots of fairies. So at no point was I like really worried about catching a game over here, but, um, I feel like it's maybe unfair to judge the fun quality of this boss fight just based on that. Yeah, no, that's fair. I, I think that this is one of the better boss fights we've had. I think probably the best since Gemisaur King. I don't know. I really liked the, uh, <laughs> um, Stallblind. Yeah. I liked Stallblind a lot. Um, but this one was really good. I think it, it took in, I like when Zelda goes to more abstract monsters, right? Like it doesn't just stick with the <laughs> giant spider, giant Octorok. Yeah. Goma. Yeah. Like yeah. When, when we get something new, um, I like that. And I think that this was a very refreshing, very new feeling boss that had very different mechanics from any boss that I personally can remember fighting specifically just with the, um, traversal of the arena. I guess Arbiter's Ground was kind of similar with the, um, the spinning top that you have to use to get close to things, but all in all, like it was, I think it was a really well designed and well uh, implemented boss fight. That was, I can see it being very difficult, but having nine hearts and the blue mail and the fully upgraded master sword, I was never at risk fighting this boss. Like, even though I fell off my own platform like three times and I got hit a ton by the P hats because I was just ignoring them at a certain point. Once I realized <laughs> they were only doing a quarter heart of damage, I was like, screw this. I don't need to worry about them. I'm just sitting there hacking away at this giant plant. Like, um, I think with this, but that's just a testament to where I am at in the game. But like, if I had done this earlier in the game, I can see this boss being a real hassle. Yeah. How about you, Max? How do you feel about this guy? So this was the hardest boss in the game for me. Um, and that's because by the time I got here, I still had just the green tunic and, you know, I didn't have a fully upgraded sword yet. Uh, I mean, it still wasn't that hard because I'm not playing on hero mode. Uh, I kind of wish I had because the game was too easy overall for me. Um, but uh, this was the one that I remember like, I was actually like, oh, I'm taking damage because I'm not doing a good enough job at dodging everything. And I keep <laughs> dis disintegrating my own sand out from underneath me by using my yep. sand rod. And uh, Yeah, it had, it had a lot going on. Uh, I think the boss... Um, uh, I, I kind of feel like all the, the, the dungeon bosses in this game are forgettable for some reason. And I have a hard time putting my finger on why. Because, like, Link to the Past bosses, I remember super well. That's probably just nostalgia and the fact that I played that game a million times. Um, but when I started this game again, I didn't remember a single boss, I don't think, other than Moldorm, I guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> kind of yeah. hard to forget Moldorm. <laughs> Memorable by uh, rep repetition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, like, every time I got to a boss in this game, I was surprised, but I, I forgot about them almost immediately afterwards. Um, 
And this one was no exception. I had to go look it up again because I didn't remember it from my playthrough two months ago. Uh, but uh, as far as the bosses in this game goes, I appreciate that it's it's kind of a more drawn-out fight than a lot of them. Like, a lot of the bosses, you just kind of wail on them for, like, 30 seconds and they're dead. Uh, this one, you kind of have no choice but to spend a little while, like, moving around and um, waiting for the boss to do stuff. And it has big, spectacular attacks that you have to dodge because you can't damage it while it's doing the attacks. And... Um, it just feels like it's a little meatier than a lot of the others. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think one of the things that I really appreciate about this boss is that in some ways it feels much more like a 3D Zelda game boss than a top-down one. And by that, I just mean that so top-down Zelda bosses typically, you know, like we're saying, they take place in a much smaller area, and it's less about um, manipulating your environment to do damage to the boss than it is just like learning how to use X, Y, or Z item to trigger, a um, to trigger a damage phase. Right. Like that, that's a pretty classic top down Zelda boss sort of thing. And with this boss, what we really have is something that you might find in a 3d game, which is that you have to use an item to manipulate the boundaries of the arena to do damage to the boss. And, I, I, I just I really like that. I think it's a very nice change of pace for top down Zelda game bosses. And I'm I'm kind of struggling to think of an analog in any other top down that I've played to what happens here. Um, and, you know, and, and granted, like I'm missing a few from that list, like there, there's a few top downs that I have not played. And so it's totally possible that they're in there. But that, that's just my off the cuff observation. Yeah, I, I I think you're right. I can't think of any counterexamples offhand. Um, maybe maybe the DS games will have some. Yeah. But uh, in terms of like manipulating the environment to create the state you need to be able to damage the boss, that's not a thing that happens in 2D Zelda games very often. So I'm I'm definitely willing to give it uh, pretty high points just based on that alone. Uh, do we have anything else we want to say about this boss before we get out of part three? Negative. I'm good. Cool. Max, how about you? Nope. Beautiful. Else. Well, that takes us out of part three. Uh, truly a memorable dungeon map. Definitely a very good one. Uh, let's go ahead and get into part four, which is Bloopy Trails, where we talk about interesting things that diverted our attention this week. And, you know, I, I feel like the further that we go in this game, this just kind of becomes the my my check in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but uh that being said, I'll, yeah, I'll still bounce it to you first, Matt. Do you feel like you have anything worth reporting here? I mean, I kind of set it in the dungeon map. I went and got the last piece of Master Ore, fully upgraded my Master Sword, and I got to 59 Mayamais. Um, I actually also did um, another one of the rupee uh, treasure hunts, the one where you have to use the cuckoos to fly, to float oh, yeah. down. Yeah, I did that one. Nice. Um, I, I, I know we've said it before, Yeah, but I really like those. Uh, yeah, no, they're I, really great. I can I like them really a lot. Like those. Um, I also donated like eighteen hundred rupees to the rupee fairy, um, which, hmm. like, I'm starting to just begrudge how many rupees you have to donate to get that bottle. But I'm gonna do it. I'm, I'm this far in. I'm not stopping until I get that what bottle. Is, what is it? Four thousand? It's three thousand. Yeah, I mean that's not nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I am currently at sixty four. My mice. 
Nice. And I'm kind of getting to that point now where um, I've discovered all pretty much all of the the gimmies, right? Like all of the really low hanging fruit my mys. I yeah. think I already have. Yeah. And so I'm getting to the point now where like when I'm in an area, I'm checking the my my map and I'm seeing like, oh, you still have one left. I'm like, all right, let's go searching. Yep. And that's fun. Like, I, I yeah. really appreciate that. It feels like there's a really good balance of like there's some just hanging off of walls. Right. And then some others that you really have to go looking for. And I, I, I really do think that 100 was a good number for them to shoot for with this. Um, it, it, It's not boring for me yet. And if nothing else, it's leading to me spending more time just poking around in the overworld, just trying things. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there's some that are hidden in sand, which uh, now that you have the sand rod, you can <laughs> pop them up. Right. And so. Uh, and and the Titan mitt. Yes. Well, the, yeah. yeah. There are some under the big, yeah, big rocks. Titan yeah. mitt opens up a bunch of new things in this game. Um, but I will just say to that point, if you're playing this game, not with the volume on then I, I really I highly recommend cranking that volume up or listening on headphones or something because a lot of these my mys, especially the ones that are in the sand, for instance, if you can't hear that little chirping sound, then you're kind of lost at sea. For it, sure. At that point it's just like, oh, you randomly tried some sand rod here and hey, look at you. You got lucky, you know? Um definitely yeah. need it's it definitely rings some alarm bells for me around like accessibility yeah. for hard of hearing. Play. Yep. Um like we would consider that a serious problem on most games that I've worked sure. on. Um, I, I think that this is another example of like Nintendo occasionally shows flashes of like accessibility brilliance and they seem to do so completely by accident. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, and this is one of those instances where it feels like, yeah, that it's really not, probably not the best way that that could have been done i mean and, and again um 2013 you know 10 years ago at this point i know that still feels like the modern age of gaming and in some ways it is but the conversation around accessibility in games i i think from a mainstream perspective is more recent than that uh feel free to disagree with me max if you feel like i'm wrong no it's it's only really been in the last half decade that it's become uh, widespread uh, priority. Yeah, that, that that feels right to me. And, uh, and you know, that's great. I'm glad that we're at that point. And uh, being the Nintendo fan that I am, I hope that, you know, future titles really kind of capitalize on that. I mean, uh, again, this is a rabbit trail, but would you say that Breath of the Wild is accessible or not, Max? I mean, does it have any kind of glaring issues from that standpoint as far as you can remember? Um. Well, it doesn't have button remapping, so that's that's a huge knock against it on the accessibility yeah. front. Um, nothing else comes to mind as like a glaring problem to me offhand, but I'm far from an expert either. Yeah. We basically need to like to really do it well. You kind of need to individually bring in experts on each, <laughs> you know, kind of different swath of disability, and it's hard for any one person to actually see all of the issues yeah you got to get your uh steve sailors in to uh you know give a talk to your studio that's important yeah um but anyway so all that yeah so 
uh, my Mayas were my big thing this week. I got a few pieces of heart. Um, I did upgrade my Master Sword with uh, just to red level. You know, last week I said that I just, for whatever reason, forgot to go and do that, even though I had enough Master Ore. Yeah. Uh, but I did do it this week, and so my Master Sword's looking a bit beefier than it was previously. But, uh, but yeah, you know, not really much else beside that. I think um, – I, I really do think that this game is one where a lot of the fun secrets are sort of front loaded, you know? Yeah. And as you get into the back half of the game, it really is just the Mai Mai situation, which yeah. which there's nothing necessarily wrong with. Mai Mai's are great and it's it's still keeping me entertained. So um, it's it's hard to complain about. How about you, Max? Do you feel like there's anything worth mentioning in terms of like things that are distracting your attention or off the beaten path sort of stuff? Uh, well, around, uh, I think after I beat this game, this dungeon, um, was when I really knuckled down was like, I'm going to get all the Maya Mai's. I think between this dungeon and the next, I got all of them, um, because I finally had the Titan's Mitt and the Sand Rod, which were the two things holding me back. Uh, so, you know, leading up to this dungeon, I, I probably most of my time on side content was spent chasing my MIs. I do love the system a lot. The, the way they decide to give you information um, where they're like, OK, here's this big region that we've outlined on the map. There are 10 my MIs in here. Go find them. It kind of hits this sweet spot where it's like enough information that I feel feel like I can reliably spend time and find them. Um, but not so much that it's giving it away. Like I still have to look and pay attention. Um, so I kind of, I, th- I think that's really successful. Uh, also the, the little squeaky noise they make is so annoying. So I want to, <laughs> I want to find them to make them shut up. It reminds me of, um, uh, a smoke alarm that's running out of batteries. This occasional high pitched squeak on the edge of your hearing, you're like, it's driving me crazy. It's uh, it's uh, not quite as bad as the Mario sixty four baby penguin, but it's up there. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, j- joking aside, I think it's really successful. And and you've already made the comparison to like Skulltulas and Koroks. It's kind of fitting, hitting the same uh, niche in terms of giving you a reason to pay attention to and explore the world. Uh, obviously it gives you the most valuable benefit of any of those um, by far, like getting, getting those item upgrades is a huge benefit in this game. And it's really fun to get them because like suddenly this item is twice as fun to use. And um, unlike Koroks and Skulltulas, they don't feel optional to me. I would like never play this game without collecting Mm -hmm. all of them. Yeah. Uh, Completely agree. Uh, Actually interesting to that point, talking about how when you upgrade these items, they become twice as fun to use. That led me to a quick Google about what the actual differences are between the sand rod and the upgraded sand rod, because uh, I didn't know, actually, I I was kind of having trouble kind of pinning that down and trying to figure out what it, what it really does once you upgrade it. Um, and it turns out that it's not really much. The upgraded sand rod, when you create a sand pillar, it lasts for an infinite period of time. Whereas the non-upgraded sand rod, they disappear after a little while. Uh, so, so, so I mean, that makes a big difference in the desert palace. Uh, yeah, it, it, it definitely but does. You don't benefit from it much if you upgrade afterwards. No, not at all. I, I feel like... 
that is a little disappointing, bit of a missed opportunity. Um, also, I don't know how to solve for that because my immediate thought was like, well, upgraded version should do like stun damage within a whole circle around you, right? But if you do that, now you're able to create sand pillars in a circle around you and you're breaking puzzles in the desert palace. So I'm not really sure how that would work. But anyway, uh, yeah, that's what your upgraded sand rod does. Um, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, all right. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get into part five, which is Z targeting, where we lock on to fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. And um, Matt, I'm going to let you go first. Mostly because I have a really unique one this week. Oh, good. I'm pretty sure that no one's going to steal it from me. But mine is Zangagaragagagagra. That one. Yeah. <laughs> it. Um, you know, I I love unique, and I said this a lot in the boss section, but just the uniqueness of the enemy design, the uniqueness of the boss design. It's not just a stun it by hitting the eye. It's not a. I mean, it is like a hack and slash, but there's more to it just because of the arena movement, like everything that goes into everything that is that boss, like it comes from Misery Mire up into the arena, into the sand, like just all of it. I think it it works really well. And I love when Zelda goes out on a limb. It's one of the reasons I really liked Calamity Ganon's uh, or um, the the mechanical Calamity Ganon in Hyrule Castle. Um, did that have a different name other than just Calamity Ganon, Linden, and Breath of the Wild? No. Just the spider version? No, it's not all the Cal- Dark Beast Ganon. No, oh, it, it was Dark Beast Ganon and Calamity Ganon. It's all right? Calamity Ganon. Oh. Well, Calamity Ganon in Hyrule Castle, that's one of the reasons I love that character model so much, is it's it's Zelda being unique, being different, taking things to another level, to a next step, to just I love it when it does it. So there you go. That's why Zengagaga is my pick. <laughs> Zengagaga. Good. Cool. Uh, good pick, Matt. Max, how about you? Uh, minor soapbox. I find the characters in this game generally forgettable or like I don't care about them. Um, I think that the like in their quest to replicate the feel of A Link to the Past, they had too many like filler characters because that's how Link to the Past was, right? Most characters didn't have names, didn't have personalities, didn't there's nothing to them uh, because they didn't really introduce interesting cast of characters until Link's Awakening. Um, but like, I, th- I feel like they just went a little too far in like replicating like how the the uh, inhabitants of Hyrule felt um, from Link to the Past into Link yeah. to the Worlds. Uh, so, anyways, minor soapbox over. My, uh, I'm gonna pick. Um, Irene's grandmother, the old witch, cool. Maple. Uh, and the yeah, the reason I'm going to pick this one is because if you talk to the fortune teller in Low Rule, uh, he has the Low Rulean counterpart of that witch with him. She's like his lover or something, um, and he calls her Mapes. And to me, that's super interesting because that sounds to me like a nickname for Maple which implies that this is the witch Maple from the oracles mm. to me. Uh, and I love Maple from the and oracles. It's all, it's, <laughs> it's all in the same timeline. So, yep. Uh, it goes along with the whole fan theory where the old man for the link battles is, is link from LTTP. Uh, 
but I don't care about him. I care about Maple, <laughs> who I love. So she's my pick. Cool. Good pick. Um, I don't actually recall. So I've only played Oracle of Ages, never played Seasons, and uh, am definitely uh, excited to get reacquainted with that character as we kind of go into that. Uh, and also, this will be the first time I've ever played the Oracle games knowing that it's the same Link as the one from A Link to the Past and Link's Awakening. So I feel like I'll have a little bit of extra just personal interest going into it from there. So that's fun, but yeah, good pick. Okay. So, uh, mine for this week is going to be the Geldman. And so the Geldman, Matt is the, these are the desert enemies, the little, the, the shimmying. Yeah. Yeah. Enemies. Yeah. They look like Armos. Yeah. Oh, from Star from Trek. Star Trek. Yeah. yeah. I am a skin of evil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. Um, yeah. And so they're, they're the ones who pop out of the sand and just kind of shimmy at you and whatnot. And, uh, you know, they're funny enough looking enemies, right? Except I don't know if you ever tried using the sand rod on one of these, Matt. I have not. All right. If you use the sand rod on one of these, it pops them out. It pops them up out of the sand. And then what you can see about these guys yes. is that they've got legs and everything. Oh, no. And they're they're clad in red Speedos. Oh, no. And then they just kind of like run away from you. <laughs> still sh- still shimmying. Um, the uh, the Zelda wiki describes them as wearing red thong underwear. Oh, it's wonderful. And here's the thing: we only ever see them from a, from the front, so I'm not sure how much cheek is. Oh, I'm sure it's cheeky on the back. It's end, plenty right? cheeky. Um, but <laughs> so freaking. You get those ridiculous. sandy cheeks, baby. Oh my gosh, it's just so like. I don't know why. I don't think I've ever done this before in A Link Between Worlds, but the first time I got in here and one came at me, I was like, all right, sand rod, let's see what the deal is. And I'll, I'll show you a picture here in a minute, Matt. Oh, please do. But uh, but yeah, it's just so freaking funny because they pop out of the sand <laughs> and then they're like little red speedo selves just kind of like shimmy off out of screen. They don't want to fight you until they can get back below the sand. And uh, I just, oh my gosh, um, hysterical. Like really just a lot going on here yeah that is amazing wow i'm gonna go do that Uh uh-huh like immediately Um, yes definitely um i don't know how many uh enemies in the history of the zelda series can be said to be wearing identifiable undergarments hmm these are identifiable (laughs) undergarments oh yeah 100 percent. no getting around it you know so there you go um the Geldman, you are, uh, you're, you're certainly something. There you go. Congratulations <laughs> to Geldman. <laughs> nice speedo. Red. It's very bold. Very uh, bold it's a, it's a bold choice. It stands out in a crowd. <laughs> All right. Let's move into part six, which is final thoughts, where we let Matt wrap up this section of the game <clears throat> in as succinct a way as he can think to do. As we come towards the closing chapters of A Link Between Worlds, we enter one of the best examples of top-down dungeons that we've had in this game so far, Uh, rivaling even that of the Dark Palace. We get a dungeon that knows what it is and dives right into uh, puzzle-solving mechanics using its main item, uh, the Sand Rod, which is an overall uh, great puzzle-solving item that elevates itself by also being able to merge in and 
coming out of uh, its pillars. Uh, we top all of this off with two things, the Titan Mitt, which will help us explore the rest of Hyrule and Low Rule as we go around the rest of our journey, and a fight with Zangara. Zen, Zen, whatever. Zangara is good enough. Uh, Zangara, which is a truly uh, unique Zelda boss, which is a rare thing in, in, in these days. Um, and overall, just a fantastic dungeon that we enjoyed thoroughly and are looking forward to uh, exploring the rest of Low Rule and High Rule as we continue our journey to free the last two sages. Well done, as always, Matt. Hey, here's a picture of uh, Geldman wearing a Speedo. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. It looks like Johnny Bravo in a it, Speedo. It looks like if you mix Johnny Bravo, Clayface, and then Kylo Ren from that scene in Last Jedi where he's not wearing a shirt. Yes. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what it looks like. A weirdly elongated torso. Yeah, look yeah. at him. He's got like a six pack and then huge pecs. There it is. That 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 yeah. is perfect. It it looks like that one uh viral fan art of Doug. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It totally does. It's oh, amazing. I mean, wow. This honestly, well, it's so funny because you look at the link to the past official artwork of link fighting one of these things and he's just stabbing it in the and face he, and it, it looks, looks like Clayface. Ter- it looks terrifying. Yeah, it, it looks like Clayface. Yes, it looks like link fighting Clayface with a sword. And I got to say this version of Geldman is sort of not terrifying at all. The teeth have been removed for me just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, no doubt. It's no longer scary. <laughs> this okay, cool. I imagine it's this crazy. guy running at you going. Good on you, Nintendo animators. I'm sure this was a blast for y'all. Um, wow. <laughs> cool. OK, that brings us to the end of the Sacred Realms rundown. We will, of course, be back next week with another installment of the Sacred Realms rundown covering another section of this game, which we will be more than pleased to welcome Max back for. It sounds like he's been holding back a little bit uh, in anticipation of this next episode. So we love to hear that. Yes. Next episode, I will regale you all with the tale of Link Between Worlds development. Ah, oh, man, I love that. That uh, that sounds like a real quick way to get another two and a half to two hour and 45 minute episodes. So <laughs> good stuff. We're all about that here. Um, I, for one, am ready to call this thing done for the night, especially, you know, I, I always hate shortchanging a guest. I like to have a nice long uh, off ramp on the episode, you know, just like really wind things down. Be like, you know, when it's somebody that we know we're not going to have on for another season or so, be like, yeah, let's take our time. Let's really do this thing. But this is part one of the Max Nichols, A Link Between Worlds extravaganza. Next week is going to be part two. For that reason, I feel like we can probably just call it here and uh, leave you all in suspense for next week. How's that sound, Matt? I think it sounds like a great idea. Let's do it. How's that sound to you, Max? Yeah, sounds awesome. Perfect. Uh, well, we always appreciate having you on and uh, we'll do the same thing next week. But uh, real quick, go ahead and let everybody know where they can find Hyrule interviews, because I know that you're still doing quite a lot of work on that project. Yeah, I've slowed down a little bit lately, but uh, still going strong. Uh, so HyruleInterviews.com is the website I run. It's basically a big database of Zelda interviews and quotes from those Zelda interviews. Uh, the goal is to preserve as many Zelda interviews as I can for posterity and also to surface kind of the legacy of people who made Zelda games, especially the lesser known creators. Uh, you know, we need to hear about more than just Shigeru Miyamoto and Eiji Onuma when we talk about Zelda. So uh, I'm trying to find interviews with everyone, whether they were in QA or localization or 
production. I you mean to all. tell me that Shigeru Miyamoto, Koji Kondo, and Eiji Onuma did not single-handedly make all Zelda games ever <laughs> between the three of them? Not at cool. all. So, okay, biggest fact that people need to know, but they don't, is that Shigeru Miyamoto co-created the Zelda series and the Mario series. Takashi Tezuka was the co-director for Zelda 1 and for Super Mario Brothers. And he's the one who designed Link uh, and designed half the overworld for that game. So equal credit to Tezuka. There you go. It's been stated for the record. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Max, uh, really appreciate you coming on tonight, man. We will, of course, catch up with you again next week. Got a lot more to talk about. Um, Ice Palace is one of the dungeons in this game that sticks out most clearly in my mind. And uh, that that alone makes me very excited to go back and replay it. So I think it's going to be a great conversation. <laughs> All right, everybody, now that we've come to the end of the Sacred Realms rundown, I just want to go ahead and say that this is the point in the episode in which we are going to delve heavily into spoiler territory for Tears of the Kingdom. So if that is not something that you want to be a part of, then now's the time to get out because uh, this trailer that Matt and I watched this morning was chock full of uh, what could be considered heavily spoiler stuff. So... Um, really quite a lot to get into with this one. Um, Matt, I mean, I mean, this is a big one, right? Spoil taters galore and you can boil them, mash them and stick them in a stew and still have some leftover. <laughs> I think, I think you about covered it. Um, I mean, geez, I, I, so basically what we got out of this trailer, um, in contrast to the basically everything we've seen from this game up until now, um, which has been more mechanics focused, right? Uh, this was the mm-hmm. story trailer. Um, this was the analog to that last awesome trailer that they released for Breath of the Wild uh, right before it dropped, you know, where you really started seeing a glimpse of like what game, what like what story is this game telling? Um, because we really did not know that for Tears of the Kingdom at all, um, even after the last little mini direct they did where they explained like weapon crafting and all this other stuff. Um, there was really just no hint of story content, but uh, but lots and lots and lots of that in this trailer. Yeah, dude, it was um it was a whole lot. It was, um, I mean, uh, since we've already done the spoiler tag, um, the, <laughs> uh, the big reveal here being, uh, Ganondorf be back and, um, like just immediately, uh, well not immediately. I mean, it was a little bit of the ways into the trailer, but you know, revealing the big bad, you know, or at least what we can probably safely assume to be the big bad. Um, I mean, it was kind of hinted at around, but um, no bones about it whatsoever. They even released some character art of him on social media. So, like, yeah, it is confirmed uh, Ganondorf be back. It is, and, it is Ganondorf I mean, that is, rehydrated. I know that was like, that, I know that was the <laughs> joke online for... Uh, I mean, ever since that very first teaser that we had for this game where we saw the skeleton of what definitely looked like Ganondorf, I mean, people have been pretty sure that that's what we were going to get in here. But, you know, we weren't sure was this going to be a story about, you know, trying to keep Ganondorf from being completely revived um, because we'd only really ever seen him in like skeleton form. And he's looking pretty, pretty darn alive um, in this trailer. He's looking like Ganondorf, you know? Yeah, seriously. 
He is, and he's looking, uh, he's looking like he's been to the gym more than a few times <laughs> since last time we saw him. So, uh, good for Ganondorf getting swole, uh, very <laughs> jealous, I, honestly. I, I thought it was hysterical. The, um, the meme that I keep seeing thrown around on Twitter is the SpongeBob meme where it's Squidward and he's saying, oh no, he's hot. <laughs> <laughs> That is, uh, it's perfect to be honest. Yeah. Uh, Mika Burton. Yeah. He's looking Mika Burton. Who's one of our favorite social media presence people in just nerddom. Um, had posted uh something similar it was just like oh no i tripped and fell and ganondorf caught me oh no i can't get up whatever will i do you know like fainting emoji like right. darn so yeah ganondorf definitely looking like a snack out there so good for him looking like a looking like a whole snack that's for sure um i i did think it was really nice that we got some official confirmation of ganondorf being a major part of the story here. Um, but there was much more than just Ganondorf to really get into. I mean, do you want to just, how should we do this? Do you want to take the trailer front to back or do you just kind of want to, um, list off some observations as they kind of come to top of mind? Because I don't think anything that happens in this trailer is happening necessarily in like chronological Chronological order. order. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of watching it again. Um, the, like some things that jump out to me just in the title sequences, you know, when links falling through the sky, you can see on the ground, the zone. I, um, kind of hieroglyphs isn't exactly the right word, whatever the Mayan version of hieroglyphs is. Um, and like, it looks like there are areas of Hyrule that are like, designated in some way shape or form be- through these zonai glyphs there's a weird chica tower thing that's like glowy from below um yeah it's- but then there's also some really cool shots of um towns which one of the coolest things like within the first minute was um seeing hylian tents put up in old castle town um, so we can see like settlers returning to uh, the gates outside of Hyrule Castle, which I, I really, really like. So it looks like we're carrying forward some continuity of, um, you know, what what does Hyrule look like post Calamity Ganon, at least until whatever is happening in this game blows it all up. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there were definitely a few shots. The one you mentioned of Hyrule Castle Town. Um, there was one of Hateno Village. It definitely seems like Hyrule is in, is in the process of kind of like rehabilitating post the events of Breath of the Wild, which was neat to see. Um, there was kind of a sneaky shot in there that I, I had to pause it and try to figure out where on the map this was happening. But um, you actually see a shot of Link climbing above Kakariko Village, and it seems like there's a lot Mm -hmm. of sky ruins that are kind of like crashed in and around there. Um, Mm -hmm. Notably... this huge circle thing? Yeah. Um, Notably, no shrine present where it should be over there, and I think that that's pretty much in line with some stuff that we've been observing over the last few trailers where it seems like the Sheikah technology that we spent Breath of the Wild uncovering um, has disappeared or gone dormant again mm-hmm. or something along those lines. It, it's it's definitely no longer um, no longer seems to be a part of the game, which uh, makes a certain amount of sense. You know, I feel like even though there's a little bit of like fictional um, <laughs> explaining that probably has to be done in terms of like, where'd all this stuff go? Um, it would be a little weird if it was all just like still hanging out, you know, being that it's a new game and everything. <laughs> 
Yeah, I hope we get at least a line of dialogue, like from Zelda. It's like, it seems all the Sheikah technology has returned beneath the surface since it has served its purpose, or, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Your Zelda like, voice is, is truly impeccable. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. We're, we're famous for our spot-on, uh, what are those called? Impressions? Thank you. Yes, spot-on impressions. We are very famous for I don't for think those. that's one of the things we are famous for, but cool. I'm glad <laughs> that you think that. <laughs> yeah, so hopefully we get a line of dialogue about that. And in addition to just the shrines, I don't see any divine beasts around here. Like, in all of the shots that we've taken, and some have been very wide shots, it looks like, I mean, I haven't seen any. Have you? I haven't seen any of the four. I have not, but you know what we have seen is shots of the new generation of champions in action. Um, I know. That was awesome. Yeah, that moment in the trailer where um, you can definitely see Riju and Sidon, and I think you can see Tiba out the at the corner of your eye, and Unobo's in a shot as well. Um, but yeah, it definitely seems like the, the new generation of champions that we spent Breath of the Wild um, getting acquainted with are definitely going to make a reappearance here, which makes me happy because I think it would have felt like a big missed opportunity if we had not checked back in with them, especially after the large part that they all played in Age of Calamity, right? Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree. I think it's really good using of those established characters. Um, I'm very excited to see uh, Sidon uh, fighting. He was literally fighting alongside of Riju had this really cool scene where she was doing like a like a sword dance while lightning's coming all around her. Like she's basically channeling a different version of Urbosa's fury. So, you know, that makes me kind of wonder if we're going to see a version of champion abilities come back or, um, you know, I, what I kind of hope isn't what's happening is, uh, lots of, um, partner up quests or, um, I mean, a partner up quests would be fine, but as long as they're not escort missions, then no, that's fine. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be a Zelda game without an escort mission. Um, at least one, at least one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was so interesting because when I saw that shot of Riju for a second, she looked so similar to Urbosa that I was thinking like, oh my gosh, is there like some time travel shenanigans happening in this game, which I mm-hmm. still actually think might kind of be happening based on another shot later in the trailer. But that was definitely, that was definitely Riju. That was not Urbosa herbosa for sure no totally i i thought the same thing i had to rewatch it a couple of times another shot that i've rewatched and am currently paused on the screen is at one minute 17 seconds um this looks not like ganondorf this looks like demise from behind yeah like the very long red flowing hair and the he looks uh, looks kind of scaly on the arms. He looks mostly black. Like I'm wondering if we're getting a demise reincarnation that like turns into Ganondorf kind of thing. Maybe that's how he rehydrates himself. Yeah, you know, I guess anything is really possible. Um, what I was kind of taking away from that shot because I, I I know the one you're talking about was it seems like maybe this is the Blood Moon ritual that is revitalizing Ganondorf. Um, I think mm-hmm. I, I think that that's maybe just a little more likely. I personally would be a little surprised if we got a very explicit demise name drop. But uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, I, anything is possible. I'm definitely not ready. Like, I'm not here to completely count that out as a possibility. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so going back to your time travel comment. Sorry, I just smacked the mic. I'm sorry that I hit you. Um, anyway, going back to your time travel comment. So that is very interesting because 
the the trailers that we've seen, even from the very first one, seem to indicate that Zelda is falling into some kind of chasm, some kind of chasm. Yeah. And presumably dying. But in this trailer, we also see later her with her same short haircut. So we know it's at least the same time frame, presumably after the intro, because obviously that has to take place in the intro where Zelda falls and Link's arm gets all jacked up. So that has to be the beginning. of the And game. whatever happens to the master sword happens, right? Exactly. And then afterwards we see Zelda alive and well and talking to other strange beings or is, is this like spirit form Zelda and is she dead or is this time travel where we're bringing her back or like what is, yeah, there's definitely something going on there to where Zelda is, um, and in trouble, but presumably not dead, dead. Yeah. She appears like, to be. And, and I mean, at this point it's pretty clear that the Zonai as a race play a very large part in this story. Um, and this did, this did appear to be a Zonai or at least somebody who is affiliated with the Zonai. Um, and, mm-hmm. and we actually get now. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, so sorry. Keep going. Well, I was gonna say, and we you actually first. get, we get another look, um, at another point in the trailer of a character who appears to be heavily affiliated with the Zonai, um, you know, very uh, like lots of use of like dragon motifs and imagery and, um, you know, ornamentation and jewelry that are very in line with the architecture of the ruins that are in the sky for sure. But also some of the outfits that we've seen Link wearing. So definitely a lot of mm-hmm. connections there. Yeah. So at one minute, 41 seconds, this character comes up and it's humanoid, but not human. It looks like kind of a cross between Arito and whatever species Ahsoka Tano is like. He's got the head tails uh, t- and he's, but he's got a snout. Yeah, Tagruta. And he's got the all the Zonai markings like the, the makeup, the jewelry, the, the Aztec inspired hair braids like it, he definitely is something but he's not human and some of the other characters that we see like whatever zonai princess i'm assuming it's a princess or an, or a uh, you know some type of royalty the female zonai we see later in the trailer talking to zelda she looks very human like just like a dark-skinned human mm-hmm. but this zonai does not at all and i'm very curious what that entails or what that has to do with anything yeah I, I definitely am as well we see quite a lot of new characters in here um in addition to a few returning ones and um in addition to new characters we see a lot of new locations uh and so i, I get the impression that a lot of these characters are maybe going to be uh quest givers the same way that um the same way that the new generation of champions were in breath of the wild i think that that is a pretty fair bet Um, Mm -hmm. but it's just, it's, again, it's so tough because we still, there's a lot of things that we just still don't know. Like what is the balance of time spent in this game? Uh, for instance, between the ground, the sky, and then apparently underground, you know? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. It's, it's, there's a lot of crazy, interesting things that this all points to one thing. And this is just far, far left field left brain theory i'm looking at some of the markings coloration and specifically makeup patterns of some of our zonai characters and they kind of remind me of fierce deity link with the facial markings mostly um and placement of jewelry um i I mean i'm sure that that's 
just a I think Easter that's egg, like, not I, not a I uh, think that's Uber not not like a callback or anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I'm not saying Fierce Daddy Link showing up in any way, shape, or form, but like it looks somewhat similar, and I I kind of like that. Kind of the same way that the Twily and Majora's Mask have very similar motifs, but we're never officially connected, right? Like I'm thinking there's going to be a lot of theory crafting about stuff like that. Yeah, and I, I definitely think that that's probably a good shout, and I can certainly see that happening. Um, well, let's talk real quick about one of the one of the biggest parts of this video, which it obviously there was no like tag that appeared over the over the video stream that said, "Hey, you're looking at a dungeon right now," but I feel like mm-hmm. we got our first look at dungeons in this game. I think you're right. Uh, are you are you talking about the um, mine cart fight? Yeah, definitely that one. Lava? But there, but there were uh-huh. several, right? There was the mine cart fight, which was really cool. We saw a glimpse of a structure like emerging from the sand in Gerudo Desert, um, mm-hmm. and then you know there are a few shots where we see Link doing some puzzle solving up in the sky area, and it's you know it's sort of tough to know. It's like, oh, is this a dungeon experience? Is this kind of like a more self-contained puzzle thing, similar to how shrines were? Really tough to tell, but regardless, let's talk about the one area that, you know, you can look at and pretty much just say, oh, that looks like a dungeon. And that's the, it looked like an underground fire cave with some ruins. And yeah, you're on a mine cart and you're, you're fighting a Zonai drone from one mine cart to another. It's like, uh, it's very Temple of Doom. <laughs> it is when appropriate. We just watched that movie last week. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, no, it, it looks, str- although looking at it now, I'm looking further in the background as they're turning the corner. It looks like it could be an area, an outdoor area of death mountain, like an expanded or newly opened up area of the Goron mine place. Yeah. Um, it's looking like there's some open sky back there. So, um, you know, I think I hope that it is a dungeon. I, you know, you and I both talked a lot in the season of Breath of the Wild about how much we want to see the return of dungeons. And, and I may be making this up, but I vaguely remember Nintendo having some stuff to say about, you know, bringing back dungeons or, or at least hearing the feedback about Breath of the Wild not having true dungeons. So um, I may be making that up, but uh, I vaguely remember it. So, you know, I'm hoping that this is a dungeon because this looks like it very easily could be. Yeah, it, it, it definitely does. And again, some of this is a little confusing because it's entirely possible that some like clever editing of clips has caused us to like, you know, be slightly confused about, um, you know, whether one setting is the same from one shot to the next in this trailer, you know? Um, and that's totally fine. We don't want to know everything, but I definitely get the feeling that we are going to have more dungeon like experiences in this game. And there were even one or two enemies that we saw that were very clearly like, oh, that that's a boss. Right. That really looks like a, a boss encounter, um, which was great. You know, I'm I'm very curious to see. Like, I think that was always one of our big questions. Right. Is like, how do you pull off a Breath of the Wild style game? Um with a dungeon component added into it and it feels like we're going to get some kind of answer to that which is really great tell you what else we saw is a really awesome shot of that huge gleok on hyrule bridge yes that was really cool um two other awesome shots i want to call out in the same vein of just like cool enemies uh this giant mech battle so link driving his stone mech up against a stone talus that has a uh <laughs> a group of bokoblins on it that was really cool um i'm excited to create some transformers and take into battle against some stone talus um and then 
this shot, which I I think is another dungeon preview shot, more or less, is it looks like a boss battle against some kind of giant flying ice parasite with Tiva and his son. Like, and you're all flying around this giant. It looks like the uh, the lava parasite from Wind Waker, but if it was icy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Um, it, it definitely does look like Ice Goma, um, which uh, which is definitely really interesting. Again, that was another one of those. That was another one of those shots from the trailer that I kind of immediately registered as being very boss encounter looking. Um, now, like you said, it takes place in the open area in, in the open air and not necessarily within a structure. So, you know, who knows? Um, we'll, we'll definitely we'll definitely see what we see there. Uh, there was one shot that I did see where Link was wearing what looked like um, ancient dragon inspired armor. And when I say ancient dragon, I'm talking like Farosh, Dinral, Nadra. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing we didn't talk about in the last trailer is that you do see those dragons like freely roaming the sky in Hyrule. Um, yep. So definitely interested to see in what capacity they return. Um, that's definitely one of the lingering questions that I have. Um, oh, <laughs> one of the other things we saw, Matt. So we've seen at this point a large variety of objects that you can um, influence. Um, and w- w- what's the ability called again? It's the merge ability where you can kind of assemble an object from different objects. Oh, I, I don't remember okay, yeah. what it's called. Ne- neither do I. Uh, but uh, uh, in this one, Link gets a rocket, so that's cool. <laughs> yeah, rocket ship. We're going into space, boys. Yep. Uh, yeah, Tears of the Kingdom and uh, Fast 10, both going to space. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, regardless, uh, so uh, yeah, another interesting shot there. Um, let's see, what else do we have? So I, I am curious about whose voice this is, who's um, who's speaking to Zelda in the trailer. This like a head Zonai person. Um, I'm, I'm rewatching this last scene right now, and I definitely get the impression that there's a little bit of like a memory issue maybe happening with Zelda. She doesn't seem like she's kind of all there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's definitely a gap somewhere. Right. And I'm I am curious to see what part that plays. Hopefully they're not just going to redo the memory quest. Right. Like, but um, yeah, I think you're right. There's there's definitely seems to be or maybe she's trying to process new information or, or reformat, you know, a belief system in some way. Like, I don't know what that I don't know what that could look like, but um yeah, agreed. I guess we'll just say. Cool. Uh, let's see. Any anything else that you want to call out specifically? I, I think, you know, we could spend all day kind of just picking apart the individual things that we saw in this trailer. Um, but I, I think the big takeaway for me just on a what is this doing for my excitement uh, perspective is one. Mm-hmm. The, the hype is the hype is real. I mean, I was I was yeah. very hyped after the mechanics presentation they gave a few weeks ago like Mm -hmm. that you know that all seemed very fun and i was into it but we said at the end of our breakdown of that whole showcase that one of the things we were still trying to figure out is like can this game feel bespoke from breath of the wild like can it feel like more than just an expansion to that game can it feel like its own thing and yeah I think what this trailer really did for me is it showed me that like, oh, yeah, there's there's a lot here that is brand new 
to this game and anything that is still lingering from breath of the wild i feel like i'm just gonna have extra emotional attachment to just because i'm so invested in that area already um but it really does seem like there's there's quite a lot of space to be explored quite a lot of brand new content yeah, I, I totally agree. I think, well, number one, uh, as far as hype level, it's it's over 9,000, uh, insert Dragon Ball Z meme here. And, um, like, it's it, this trailer was amazing. And, like, I, I'm somewhat... Um, I have some reservations about some of the futuristic type of stuff that we're seeing, like rockets and uh, building giant mechs. Like, I, I, you know, Zelda in a New Direction... It, I think it will end up being fine. It's just one thing that hits me a little weird. But other than that, um, the game is so obviously massive and it is so obviously its own thing while having very direct callbacks to Breath of the Wild outside of just um, the setting. And seeing the champions, the new generation of champions again, was probably the thing that made me most excited. maybe Ganondorf as well, just like seeing some of those things returning in a new way and, and what that could mean for the game as a whole. So, um, I, I think that this trailer definitely put it over the top and, um, like you said, squished any fear of it feeling like a DLC to, to breath of the wild. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad we're on the same page about that. I feel like I'm now in that perfect spot where I'm ready to not see anything else before this game comes out. Yes, I I think anything more would be a disservice to um, surprises, even for those of us who have not avoided spoilers and have been consuming, you know, the official media. I think this is about as much as I want. Yeah, yeah, no, I I, I completely agree. Um, And it sounds like there's probably not going to be too much to avoid just from that perspective, because, you know, Eiji Onuma did specifically say that this was going to be their final trailer before the release of the game. So I don't I don't feel like we're going to have I mean, maybe one or two extra like small social media ready trailers that might have a glimpse or two that we haven't seen yet. That's pretty standard. Um but for the most part, I don't think we're going to get anything else big before this game launches. I mean, we're 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 one month away. We're we're less than we're we're uh, what twenty nine days away, thirty days away. So like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. At this point, we're in full. It's coming. It's almost here. You know, let's just sit back and enjoy the ride. Yeah. No, I, I'm very, very, very excited. Cool. All right. Well, I'm glad that we could catch up about it real quick, Matt. Um, Of course, if any new information does come out between now and then, then we will be sure to update you, our listeners. But in the meantime, if you are not uh, if you're not concerned about, um, you know, spoilers for this game, I would definitely recommend going and checking out this trailer from this morning because uh, it is it's a really, really great one. And uh, I think builds a lot of excitement for the game. Um, and if you are spoiler concerned, then best of luck to you as you go into the next month trying to dodge as many of these spoiler darts as you can. Um, like Indiana Jones trying to escape the Hidden Temple. They're flying out the walls. And uh, I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> absolutely you might want to just uh stay off the internets in general because youtube thumbnails and twitter instagram facebook all of it just it's 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 there so uh 
Good luck. May the odds be ever in your favor. Absolutely. All right, Matt, this has been fun, but let's uh, let's go ahead and get out of here and then we can close out the episode. I'll catch you later. Let's do it. Bye. Bye. All righty. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple Podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on A Link Between Worlds, Chapter 9, covering our adventure into the Ice Ruins. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. A Link Between Worlds can be played on the Nintendo 2DS and 3DS family of systems. But in the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We'll catch y'all next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameShops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.